Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Mormon History Hoedown with a very special episode today. My name is Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuanso, and sometimes I go by the beneficiary of all of Julia from Analyzing Mormonism's hard, hard work on debunking falsehoods about Mormonism and Joseph Smith's polygamy. So I'd like to welcome to the program today, Julia. Hi. Everyone, this is Julia. She uh, does a fantastic job of editing a lot of clips and doing a lot of research and presents it so masterfully and wonderfully. If you don't follow her, please do. Uh, analyzing Mormonism on all the platforms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to say to introduce yourself? Like I grew up in the church. I left in 2021. I have analyzing Mormonism. It's mostly just TikTok, or, but I try to share it everywhere. Well, I think you're fantastic. And Julia does my old job at Mormon Stories, too. <laughs> I said, John, I'm leaving. If you can find somebody better to make your TikToks, do it. I didn't say it like that. That's a joke. But then he <laughs> said, I'll take Julia. And I said, good. I, she does a good job. So we love Julia. Thank you so much. The topic of today is around not just polygamy and Joseph Smith specifically, but there are so many arguments that Mormon apologists come up with. There's nothing that he's done that is so sleazy, that is so wrong, that it disqualifies him from a pro- being a prophet. And whether I think they need to completely uh, change the facts of history, only focus on certain cherry-picked facts, or uh, just generally reinterpret things so that he is not disqualified as a prophet. Do you think that's kind of a fair assessment, Julia? Yeah. Anything oh, yeah. you want to add yeah. to that of kind of how the spin goes? Let's take this terrible thing and try to make it as pretty as possible. Like, yeah, Joseph has to be clean. I guess that's where we're getting all this um, polygamy deniers because Joseph Joseph can't be wrong. Brigham can, but... Yeah, and as Lindsay Hanson Park was just on Mormon Stories just a couple hours ago, and I was watching that, and she mentioned in that, Lindsay Hanson Park, who does your polygamy podcast and the Sunstone podcast, very well acquainted with everything to do with polygamy. And like she likes to say that the history of Mormonism is a history of polygamy. They're really intertwined. They're one in the same because so much of early Mormonism had to do with men needing to have as many wives sealed to them as possible, that the women would be like jewels in their crowns in their kingdoms in heaven, and that being married to multiple women, being sealed in this this new higher order, this new higher law is the way that you obtain your actual salvation. So that is what Mormon apologists like to say. Well, that's what was understood for the time, but it was only after the first manifesto, the second manifesto, where the U.S. government was putting so much pressure on the Mormon church that if they wanted to become a U.S. state and be uh, fully welcomed into the United States of America, they were going to have to negotiate their doctrines around polygamy. But I would still say, like Lindsay Hanson Park likes to say, the Mormonism is a history of polygamy. And as she just said in the Mormon stories earlier today, that a lot of people go through seminary their whole life. I don't know about you guys, but I I did not know the magnitude of Joseph Smith's polygamy and what he practiced. And many, many people don't even know that he was a polygamist. They thought that that was just something that Brigham Young added. And she just said in Mormon stories, I, I wish that we always want to heap a lot of stuff onto Brigham Young. And trust me, I want to too. But polygamy definitely started with Joseph Smith. As I'm sure we'll be talking about the attitudes towards women and the type of uh, sexual deviancy and predation like that were instituted by Joseph Smith that were later copied by his successors and the other Mormons. So it's very, very much a part of Mormonism. We cannot remove one from the other. And everything about Warren Jeffs and things that would make you just cringe 
even if you are Mormon, that you say, oh, that's repulsive. Don't have us do anything with FLBS. Uh, those are things that were doctrines and policies and practices. Those were all laid in to the foundation of Mormonism from the beginning. And if we want to attack the problems, the ghosts of eternal polygamy, if you will, Oh, I wish I had the book right here, but I did. We have to talk about Joseph's polygamy. So that is my intro. Julia, what do you have in store for us today? What are we going through? Okay, so there was a there's a creator on TikTok, the Scripture Plus app. Um, I think her name is Jasmine. Jasmine. Not, Jasmine, okay. So she had seen Don Bradley's a presentation in, in the fair conference. And it was this Don Bradley New Discoveries where you you where you take Louisa Beeman and you she was the third plural wife and you move her down in the timeline. Anyway, so I responded to her saying that this was incorrect. And today is basically the same presentation, but just more information or better source, whatever. And then I, I also responded to Don Bradley directly. The conference came out last week, like through on YouTube. So I responded to him just talking about Zina. I don't see Zina's story as um, faith promoting at all. It's just terrible. And so I was more responding to that rather than rather than his entire argument. So anyway, he messaged me personally and then had some gaps about my research. So that's where this presentation is coming from is just like responding to Don Bradley directly, I guess. So yeah, perfect. And you have in store for us clips from his fair mm -hmm. LDS. It's an apologist conference. And if you don't know what an apologist is, welcome to my channel because we love <laughs> debunking them and kind of holding their arguments accountable where uh, a bunch of different Mormon scholars and historians come up with the best arguments they can for faith promoting narratives about the church and whatever kind of spin sometimes that they need to do. Yeah. So John Bradley's given this presentation three times now, um, once in the fair conference on and on word radio, which I have clips from that as well that I want to share. And then there's another one called let's get real with Stephen Jones. I haven't seen that one. He just did it last night. He just shared that one with me today but I didn't have time before this presentation. So I don't, I'm assuming he's going over the same type of stuff. So, yeah, so you've prepared different clips from the fair Mormon conference. And then also from Don Bradley being on ward radio, my audience just loves to get into that. All right. So without further ado, um, should we start the presentation? Great. Yeah. So, so who is Don Bradley? I kind of gave a little, at least why I'm doing this presentation, but if you go to the next slide, I think there's a video clip at least six times in his fair presentation. And I think he mentions it in, Word Radio, and then in this other one with uh, Stephen Jones. Maybe just share the clip, and then I want to talk about it. Well into that work, when I left the church 18 years ago, I intended to write up research as a historian that would demonstrate that Joseph Smith was an opportunist. Somewhere along the line, I changed my mind. In fact, you may have guessed from my choice of venue today. While I was yet a non-believing historian and then an atheist, I began to change my mind, as I said, why I was not, why I was actually a non-believing historian. Uh, even though at the time I thought Joseph Smith was making up his visions. So as an ex-Mormon, I was curious, uh, ex-Mormon historian, I was curious. Okay, so he even, whenever he was messaging me, he even brought it up as well. Like having been an ex-Mormon myself, I totally understand this type of stuff. So I just think it's interesting and very unnecessary. I feel like that's some kind of fallacy. I don't know what. Oh yeah, more... do you want me to rant on it? I'm oh, ready. Oh yeah, please. <laughs> so in my video that I did last week, uh, where I was responding to uh, Don Bradley, who was on Ward Radio, and they were going over the problems and the, and the places of approval that they had with Johnny Harris's uh, piece on Mormonism, the truth of Mormonism. And Don Bradley had his little little spreadsheet of everything he liked and didn't like. And I had, for a historian, I could not believe some of the things that he said. And there's somebody in the chat who said they know Don and 
he's a, he's a nice guy. I'm sure that he is. And I have nothing against him personally. Uh, but the things we talk about are very serious. People stake their life to, on them. And it's very important if people are listening to somebody who's no historian that they come with a certain level of credibility. And so if you're going to say things like they did on that, that episode that Don Bradley did with Ward Radio about like, oh, how long was Joseph Smith treasure digging for? Do you have a, do you have a high certainty that it's below a certain amount of times or is between a certain amount of years? And he says that it was between 1824 and 1826. And that's just not true. And, and he said that there were about a dozen. He said it was an offhand account. I'll give him you know, we can't all be perfect. Um, but then said that his treasure digging was after Moroni came. That's also not true. These are these are serious things that need to be taken with a, a high level of research that go into them, right? And so throughout that 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 podcast, he's talking to Johnny Harris in this way where he's like, I understand. I would say congratulations to you, Johnny Harris, that you are like how I was, where you learned a bunch of information that you didn't know before. And to that, I have to say, congratulations. But if you just stop at that point, then you don't understand that there's actually more exploration. There's more to learn. It doesn't, your history study of Joseph Smith and the foundations of the church shouldn't stop at just learning all this information. It should be encouraging you to learn more. And not only do I think that the more that he's talking about is learn the apologetic responses to things that we intuitively know are immoral practices that we would not put up with and we would see the con man-like behavior in other religions. But I also think that that exact thing that he said is the model of a treasure dig. That whole video I did was about treasure digging. So much of early Mormon history is about Joseph Smith telling people that believed in him, believed he had powers. He led them to an area to start digging that the, the spirit, you know, that's guarding this treasure. Oops, you missed it and just keep digging. But the people still believed in him when he couldn't actually come up with and have anything material to show for it. But just keep believing, just keep believing, just keep believing. It is very telling that in a religion that it's not that Johnny Harris learned some new things. He learned things that he wished he probably would have known before he served a mission, just like all of us, that we wish we would have known that had been systemically hidden from us because of the same things in that episode that Don Bradley doesn't even want to reveal of when Joseph Smith's treasure digging took place. Are you following? Mm -hmm. So there are so many things within Mormonism that it's not that we just oh, we look so high and mighty ex-Mormons ex because we feel like we've graduated, that now we know the truth, you know? It's more than that. It's that we recognize that a church has systemically hidden information from us that from the beginning would make our prophet look like a con man. And then when we find it out, we are told, just like the treasure diggers, keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. Something will manifest. Something will come of this. Your salvation, you'll find out when we die, just keep enduring to the end. And that is not behavior that I would accept in any other high demand religion. And I don't accept in within the Mormon context rant over. Yeah. Yeah. It just felt like, like, I guess elder Holland, when he's like, you can trust me. I've read a couple of books. I've been to a pretty good school. I just didn't like that. Don, it's not necessary for you to tell everyone that you used to be an ex Mormon that your sources, it, they should stand by themselves. So yeah, I just think that's silly and not necessary. And also there's people like Bridger, if you know him on ex Mormon TikTok, people who say I've had I a faith crisis. Or <laughs> I read the CES letter and yeah. I had a, I, I had a shake of the faith. Like I understand it, but I pushed through. What could that be from? Like, you don't want to get written out of your father's will. Like yeah. there, there yeah. are, there are other reasons people keep believing that have nothing to do with Mormonism being literally true is the point, but yeah. 
Okay, next slide. Okay, so this one I thought was interesting. In his messages to me, he called Todd Compton's In Sacred Loneliness one of his sloppier moments. Despite the fact that he received two awards, the Best Book Award for the Mormon History Association and the John Wimmer Historical Association. So, and even Lindsay Canson Park, when she first started the year of polygamy, she was using Todd Compton as sort of a springboard for her research and her in her episode. So like, I don't know why John Bradley is calling it a sloppier moment, um, but I thought that was an interesting thing to pull out and show. Yeah. Let me just address this real quick. Dinosaur Park and such said, Ryan Wimmer, why do ex-Mormons keep using the apologist label? It reminds me of Mormons using the anti-Mormon label as a way to write off people. I, I think that apologists are not actually interested in the truth or interested in a faith promoting narrative because apologists exist in all different religions that we don't agree with. And I really like what Dan McClellan had to say on Mormon Stories a couple of weeks ago, where he said his whole entire thing, Dan's uh, used to you know, work for the LDS church and is a, a Bible scholar. And he has his podcast data over dogma. And he says that he doesn't like apologists. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand his reasons because he says that apologists do not go where the evidence, where the data actually leads them to go. And uh, right. that's that's fair. I think anti-Mormons go where the where the data leads them to go. I personally am pro-Mormon in the way that I want Mormonism to be a healthier place to belong to uh, because it will probably always exist, especially in my lifetime. And I hope that Mormonism becomes a place that has more transparency, more consent, more best practices, psychologically speaking. So I want the best for Mormons. And part of that is helping people become them, their best selves through having informed consent and things like that. Yeah, yeah, just along that note too. So other historians I don't call apologists or don't think of them as apologists, like Todd Compton, he's an active member of the church. He's just trying to share all the facts. And then even D. Michael Quinn, um, he, while he was excommunicated, he was still always a believer. But I don't call him an apologist either because he's just going to give all the facts regardless of where it takes people. Like he's like, oh yeah, we lived polygamy well after um, the manifestos. And he's like, there's no accounts of Joseph Smith receiving the priesthood until a certain date. Like he's not apologizing. He's just presenting it. And people can choose to believe. Like, I think that's how the church should be. Just give us all the information and let the members decide whether they want to keep continue believing or not. So like, so if you're, if you're a good historian, I would not call you an apologist because you're just, you're just interested in the facts. Like, like you were saying with uh, Dan McClellan, like he's not an apologist. He's not a biblical apologist to any degree. He's still a member of the church. Anyway, so yeah, I totally agree with you. Right on. Especially if you're going to go on word radio with, uh, I don't think Cardinalis believes that Joseph Smith was even a treasure digger in that response video that I made on him, on them talking about Johnny Harris, while Don Bradley is explaining the treasure digging of Joseph Smith, like Cardin goes hired laborers. He was, there's this narrative that he was, if, if Joseph tr was a treasure digger, he didn't do it for very long. And if he did it for very long, it wasn't his idea. And if it was his idea, uh, he was just a hired laborer. And if he actually had the rock in the hat, um, then he, it was a preparatory gospel. You know, oh, it's, boy. it's very telling whenever the narrative of what the truth of the religion that is the one true religion of God, what it even is, needs to not be told to the membership for so long. It is very, very telling that we constantly have to be spinning things so that they're more palpable. And then at the end of the day, it still don't get uh, that many comforts. So, all right, we've said our piece on that anyway. All right, back at it. Kirtland wives. So one thing people point out is why are we not discussing Fanny Alger or Lucinda Pendleton Harris? 
And so I guess I think the reason, and I'm sure he'll correct me, but I think the reason he doesn't discuss them is because the new marriage system had not yet been created in Kirtland. And so Fanny and Lucinda are, don't seem to be worth talking about. I, I don't understand him. I'm just going to leave it at that. He did another episode on Word Radio all about Fanny. And to me, it sounded like it's like Fanny looks like an affair, but it's totally not an affair. Again, I don't really want to speak to this because I don't I don't know why he's leaving them out. I'll just leave it. <laughs> okay, so this this clip just kind of gives an overview. It just kind of uh, starts off his presentation. So um, it has long been believed uh, ever since 1886 uh, that Mormon polygamy, Nauvoo polygamy begins in a certain way. Um, so on April 5th, 1841, Joseph Smith married his first Nauvoo pro-wife, the young single Louisa Beeman. He would wait another six and a half months before marrying again. That, at least, is the standard story. So this is, you know, Joseph's reputed first uh, Nauvoo wife. Um, but when we look at the story, there are anomalies, okay? So um, one, of these, one of the things you'll notice here is, so like, one of these things is not like the others, right? There are um, a number of women who married Joseph early on when he's starting polygamy in Nauvoo, and all these women have previously married except for one, and that's Louisa Beeman, the one who's supposedly first. So look at the uh, time gap between these wives, right? So it turns out that where the, for the ones, early ones that we have definitive dates, it's just a matter of weeks usually, or maybe a month between marriages. But between the one that's supposed to be the first one and the second one, there's a gap of six and a half months. So that one is an outlier in two ways. She's never, Louisa Beeman's never married, and there's this unexpectedly large gap there. Why is it that we put things in this order? Since, since it's sort of anomalous, we want to ask the question, well, why, why do we believe this in the first place? Why do we put Louisa Beeman first? Well, the person who performed the marriage, Joseph B. Noble, who was a brother-in-law of Louisa, reported in later statements that he performed Joseph Smith's marriage to her, um, a claim for which we find further documentation, there's, and there's no reason to doubt he performed the marriage. However, he further claimed that this was Joseph's first plural marriage, which is questionable, um, and that the, that the marriage was done April 5th, 1841, which we will also question. Um, so uh, he also, by the way, claimed to have the first child uh, born in polygamy, and that's, that's demonstrably not the case. That was Heber C. Kimball. Um, so there are several reasons to question Noble's dating. Um, so uh, Noble also claimed, oh, well, I already said that one, okay. Um, Noble was, by the admission of his descendant biographer, terrible with dates. So there you go, guys. This is the guy we're relying on for the chronology of Nauvoo polygamy, and what do we know about him? He's terrible with dates. We also know that, uh, just to sort of confirm that he's terrible with dates, his own first plural marriage happened to be on the same day that he said Joseph's was uh, two years later. Uh, which would be a strange coincidence. Uh, Noble actually gives a variety of dates. So that April 5th, 1841 date is because we have that date that became the popular date because Andrew Jensen, that happened to be the date in the affidavit that he had, but there are other affidavits, there are other statements, and they give uh, two different days of the month, two different months, April and May, and uh, three different years ranging from 1840 to 1842. Uh, in fact, the only thing these dates have in common is they're all in the spring. Um, that detail that um, they're all in the spring is the card that brings the whole house down. 
because in the Temple Lot case, Noble was asked to testify, and he was all over the map and the dates that he gave for the marriage, but then they asked him, well, where did it occur? You know, you don't remember when it occurred, but how about where did it occur? He says, uh, it was in Nauvoo, and the person says, at whose house? And he says, at mine. Well, there you go, okay. So uh, Gary Bergera, I put Gary Bergera up here, but also I found that the, uh, the descendant biographer found the same thing and says the same thing in the biography. He says, uh, Noble moved his family, including uh, presumably Loiza, to Nauvoo sometime after September 1841. And the descendant biographer says that it was after that point that he builds his house. If Joseph was married to Loiza Beeman at Noble's house in Nauvoo, and the Noble family didn't move to Nauvoo till um, after September 1841, and the marriage occurred in the spring, then the spring in which it occurred could not have been the spring of 1841. So we move that one back to 1842. That changes the order of these early marriages. All right, Julia, will you go ahead and summarize what, what the heck is he talking about? Yeah, so he's saying, let's move Louisa back because the, his home wasn't being built, and he says that they got married in his house. So that'll make her like the, I can't remember the exact number. He'll show the chart later, like the seventh or eighth. I can't remember. But he wants to move the date for Louisa back because of this house wasn't finished being built. That's that's pretty much the whole argument to later say, which which we'll get to later. But yeah, that's basically, did you have thoughts too? Nope. It's all going to be unraveled because what we are talking about today has to do with an argument centered around that Joseph Smith was so wonderful and pure and yeah, he made some mistakes, but he was not in this business of polygamy just to be having sex with other men's wives. That's not it at all. And we will answer through the historical record what that is. Also, just want to say hey to Anthony Miller. Fabulous to have you. Ben Park in Kingdom of Nauvoo also expressed that pre-Nauvoo polygamy was probably something theologically different than what happened in Nauvoo. Kingdom of Nauvoo, Ben Park, who is probably going to be on the podcast next week, by the wow. way. I should have to set something up with him. Love Ben Park. Love you, Anthony Miller. Kingdom of Nauvoo is fantastic at describing all of that. The spiritual wifery that was abundant. All right. Should I move on to the next one? Sure. Yeah. All right, this one? Yeah. So that's just it. the gist of it. Um, yeah. He wants to move the marriage from April 5th of 1841 to September of 1841 or sometime after September. So yeah. That was just the whole crux of his argument. And this next one is a scene. He's kind of reiterating it from word radio. A different he says, angle. Maybe it was the sixth, not the fifth. He says, well, it could have been 1840. Might've been 1841, but maybe it was 1842. When he's questioned on this years later in the temple mm. lot case, oh. they try to pin him down on a date. And he, ultimately he's like, Okay, somewhere between 1840 and 1842. So the only thing these dates have in common is that they're all in the spring and they're in the early 1840s. So apparently what, what we do know about this marriage is it's in the early 1840s and it was in the spring. When he was asked in the Temple Lot case when the marriage occurred, and he gives this range of years, he's also asked where does this marriage occur? What he says um, is it occurred in my house at Nauvoo. He's asked where did it occur uh, you know, like it was performed in Nauvoo. Yes, sir. At whose house? At mine. The problem with this, we know when this guy moved to Nauvoo and built his house. He didn't move to Nauvoo until the fall of 1841, after the marriage is supposed to have occurred. Ah, and he didn't hmm. build his house till after. So what's the smoking gun? And Don Bradley's in the chat. He says he's driving and not able to comment further, but will be listening. Don, 
You're welcome to come on my podcast anytime. And we will talk about all the things that I've ever wanted to talk about. <laughs> Anything else on that one, um, Julia? No, he's just reiterating. Just like, I want to make sure you guys understand the argument so that you'll understand what, what I'm going to say. So yeah, he calls it a smoking gun and these new discoveries. So so my his argument is that Luisa's marriage to date needs to be moved. And mine is there's no reason to move the marriage date of Luisa Beeman. That's all. That's the, my whole argument. Okay. Explain. Yeah. Okay, so when did Josephine Snow move to Nauvoo? Because he's like, they can't have been married in his home because his home wasn't built. So where is he during 1840, 1841, and 42? There's a minutes and discourse. And this was recorded March 6th of 1840. He shows up in this in the high council meeting and he's in Montrose, which is right across the river from Nauvoo. So he's he's right within just a few miles of Nauvoo. So he's in the vicinity in 1840. In the history volume C1, this is the 7th of August of 1841. He was called as a counselor in the bishopric to Elias Smith. This is a conference was held at Zarahemla. So Zarahemla, um, the saints called this Zarahemla. And when I was a member of the church, there was this theory that this is off topic, but there's a theory that this Zarahemla is the same Zarahemla as the Book of Mormon Zarahemla, which is like a Rod Meldrum, mm -hmm. Wayne May kind of idea. Anyway, so it's just right. You'll see Montrose, you'll see Zarahemla, and then Nauvoo is, of course, across the river. So so he's right there in the vicinity during 41 and 40. This one says he was made a counselor to the bishop on December 19th of 1840. I just thought that was interesting. And again, we know that he's there in the area. He was deeded land. He got land from Joseph and Emma. Um, I think it's four lots. Um, he got it for $5,000. We don't know if he moved there in July. I doubt it. A lot of members, so we, we just visited Nauvoo last month. And what a lot of people did is they would build cabins while their home was being built because it took so long for the bricks to be finished and for the homes to be built. So they have temporary log cabins while their homes were being built. We saw the Kimball, the Heber C. Kimball home, beautiful home, but they didn't really get to live in it very long. Um, they were in a cabin anyway. So I don't know. I don't know where he's at here. I, it's just interesting to know that he did buy land on July 15th of 1841. Uh, is there anything on this slide that you want to read off? The way this is kind of worded, this is off topic from anything, but it sort of sounds like a marriage where it's like to happen to hold ab the above described premise to the said Joseph Bates Noble, his heirs and assigns forever. It just sort of sounds like a marriage. I don't, I don't know it's why. It's just a land deed to Joseph Bates Noble. Yeah. Like, or maybe marriages sound like land deed. I don't know. That's well, that's, land and women were like kind yeah. of interchangeable with like <laughs> three point. Yes. Yeah. And cows, all of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And this next one is, this is just another um, land deeds book. This one says it's three. He purchased it for 3000, not five, but it's the same day, um, July 15th and it's paid and deeded. So anyway, he does have land in Nauvoo. Joseph, trusty land deed book. You went into some serious deep dives into history. Congratulations. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this on audio, you can pull it up on my YouTube channel later on. These are great pictures. I don't know what date this is, but this is from his biography. Um, this is, I'm assuming this is him talking because it's in his voice, but we soon commenced to move our families up the river about 50 miles to a place called Commerce, afterwards Nauvoo. Quite a number of us crossed the Mississippi River to the Iowa side to avail ourselves of some log cabins that had formerly been used as barracks for the soldiers at a place called Montrose. So it sounds like he lived across the river in Montrose in a log cabin. So like he, again, he's just I'm just reiterating that he is in the area in 41, 40, and 42. So and so much of Don's argument just hinged on the idea that he just didn't have his house built yet. Yeah. And that's so why I we're going to reorder the marriage marriages of Joseph Smith's polygamous wives from is on the idea that he didn't have a house. Yep. Yeah. He owns land. We know at least he owns land. He was living in Montrose or he was in Zarahemla. Like we, 
I don't know why he's why he's so firm in that stance that he couldn't have married them because his home wasn't built. So okay, next. Yeah. This is just a summary. Um, he was in Montrose as a high council meeting in 1840. Land was deeded to him in 1841. He was a counselor in Zarahemla in 1841. And at some point, I don't know when, but he lived in a log cabin in Montrose. So just reiterating that he there's no reason to, for us to think that he wasn't in the area during the time that Louisa Beeman's marriage to Joseph would have taken place. Okay, so this is another huge thing um, that I don't understand why John Bradley seems to be ignoring or maybe unaware of this evidence. But where did Joseph marry Louisa? So he says it's from his house, but we're gonna I'm going to show you sources that say that's not the case. The listeners who are listening to this live, if you have any questions and you want us to explain something or go into more detail, we can. A lot of this podcast is going to kind of be the real history for people who kind of already know a lot of the context of what we're talking about. But please stop us if you have any questions in the chat. Okay, so in the Nauvoo Expositor, William Law, he was from the first presidency. So it's sort of like if Oaks or um, Irene were to speak out. Anyway, in the Nauvoo Expositor, he tells a story. He doesn't he doesn't use Louisa's name, and I'm sure he's doing that to protect her. He's talking about the women. He's sort of talking about trafficking and how the women are treated. And this is he's exposing Joseph for polygamy. He says, they requested to meet Brother Joseph or some of the 12 at some insulated point or at some particularly described place on the bank of the Mississippi or at some room which bears upon its front positively no admittance. Um, we know the story of positively no admittance is Martha Brotherton when Brigham was trying to marry her. Um, that's an interesting story. Um, he doesn't use her name, but it, it could be no one else. And then again, with the on the banks of the Mississippi, it doesn't fit anyone else except for Louisa Beeman. So they were married outside <laughs> on the banks of the Mississippi. For all of you who want me to expand just a tiny bit more, yes, William Law is like the first counselor in the presidency of the LDS church at the time. And that is like as if Oaks or Iring or somebody that is very high ranking calls out the Mormon prophet or the immoral things that they are doing and decides to print it in a newspaper after a long chain of events leads to Joseph's death after that printing press being destroyed. But William Law found it her marriage to be immoral in the first place that he needed to print it in the newspaper. And we're going to play little investigators here and put the pieces together. It does say that there is some conmanship afoot. Yeah, just I just also want to point out that's 1844. So this would be like two or three years. Well, I guess if it's 1841, then it's just a three, three years later. So there's no reason to think he's getting faulty information. Like people can't remember where someone was married. He's in the presidency. He knows the hip tapsons of what's going on right. in Nauvoo. Let's be right. honest. Okay. So this is Franklin D. Richards. He's a, a, one of the 12 apostles and in his journal for 1869. So this is sometime later, 1869. He says that he's like, I think that Joseph and Louisa were married May, I think the fifth day of 1841. And he says, during the evening under an elm tree in Nauvoo, and he's the only one that gives us this information, but he says the bride dis was disguised in a coat and hat. Again, they're married outside. She's got a disguise on. And if they were in the house, she wouldn't need a disguise. So we've got two sources that say they're married outside. And then in the story of wife number 19, she published her book in 1876. She's Brigham Young's, one of his former wives. I think she's like the 53rd. I can't remember what. Anyway, but she tells the story of Joseph Smith and Louisa Beeman. She calls her Mr. Noble's sister-in-law. She says um, they, that they repaired one night to the banks of the Mississippi River, where Joseph sealed Noble to his first floor wife, and in return, Noble performed the same office for the prophet and his sister. So she, again, is also saying they were married outside on the banks of the Mississippi. And it's interesting that she says they're married at nighttime, the cover of night. So it's very mm -hmm. like cloak and dagger kind of stuff, which kind of goes along with the one before where it says that she was disguised. It was taking all the measures to have nobody know about this. Okay, so then there's another guy named Charles Lowell Walker. And he I think he talks about her at least twice in his journals. So this is just one entry. He's just talking about her. 
He calls Louisa the first wife that Joseph Smith sealed to him. It seems to me that the whole church, all the membership, when polygamy was open, they understood that Louisa was the first plural wife. There's no reason to think that, that they had thought that Zina was, which is what Don Bradley's arguing that Zina was his first Nauvoo polygamous wife. But anyway, the, they understood it so much that in 1851, they named a town after Louisa. They called it Fort Louisa, which is today called Parowan. Also, that's really cool because women are rarely ever, towns are rarely ever named after them. So this is the, this is a diary entry for Charles Lowell Walker on June 17th of 1883. And he says, Brother Nobles officiated in a grove near Main Street in the city of Nauvoo. So what, what is that for? accounts that they're married outside. Don Bradley is basing his whole rearranging of the wives on a house being built when we don't need a house at all, at least by these four accounts that are earlier than his saying that they were married in a house. His argument kind of falls apart when you present a different location for the marriage. And who did you say again said that the marriage even took place in a house to begin with? So Joseph Bates Noble himself does say that, or at least he's asked what house, whose house were they married in? So it's he's not even given the opportunity of saying, like, they should have asked where were they married? Well, whose house? mine. So that's coming from Joseph Bates Noble. And wasn't part of Don Bradley's point that he himself had a bad memory for times and dates? Shouldn't that like, be yeah. working against him? <laughs> so this is the one where he says this is 1893. So I think if I'm correcting the other one, this is the latest account that I've just listed of these testimonies of Joseph marrying Louisa. So he says, I told you it was in 1840. But I think it was a little later than that. He's answering, he's doing a Q&A or cross-examination in the Temple Lot case. So he's answering and he's like, I, I think it's a little later. I said the other day that it was when I lived in Iowa. And then I moved from Montrose to Nauvoo in 1841. He's Again, he's saying I just moved there in 1841. I lived in Iowa in 1840. Well, I said the other day that Louisa Beeman was married at my house across the river from Nauvoo in 1840. And then he says, I must have been mistaken and did not understand the question. I will settle down on the date that Louisa Beeman was married 1841 or 1842. He's admitting that he has a faulty memory. He's admitting that it's probably wasn't 1840. It was 1841 or 42. He also says there, I moved from Montrose to Nauvoo in 1841. So he's terrible with dates. And then yeah. it says at the bottom, Joseph Bates Noble admits that he was incorrect in saying she was married. This source sounds like he was not living in Iowa in 1841, but had already moved to Nauvoo. As Don Bradley points out, Bates was terrible with dates. Just reiterating that before we move on. All of this is very important because we're setting up for the first marriages of Joseph Smith's. And that also can tie into what Joseph Smith's polygamy was after. So th these are all the people that gave a location for it. 12 people who talked about it, they didn't give a location. Four said it was outdoor, out of doors, which we just went over. And then only one of them says that it was in Joseph Bates Noble's house. So like 17 accounts, only one of them says that it was in his home. And then four give it a different location entirely. Don Bradley's basing his information on this one source that's faulty. I love a graph. If anyone's listening to this on audio later, again, YouTube is where it's at. Okay, so this is another one about the dates. This is another graph. Um, so eight of them don't give a date. Two people say that it was 1840. Um, one person says May. They think it's May 5th, which we saw of 1841. They're just getting it a month off. I don't think that's a huge deal. And then five of them say that it's May 5th of 1841. And then the one we just saw with was Joseph Bates Noble, where he gives, he's like, it was 1841 or 1842. Like the location is, he's basing off of one source. And the date of 1842, he's also basing off of one source, which came from Joseph Bates Noble, who doesn't have a good memory. Can I rant for a second? Oh, please. It's been a while. So Don Bradley, you're going to be listening to this later. I'm sure at the beginning, you heard how people are arguing. If you are an apologist, historian what those different terms mean. I don't think it really matters, but 
I'm not a historian, but I know that you want to draw from as many sources as possible as a data set. And I think that is awesome, Julia, that you have drawn from as many data sources as possible to come up with what is the most likely conclusion. And if there are so many parts of Mormon history that people want to just look at through a little a hole that big and just single out that one thing. And if we can just tackle that one subject of just polygamy and be able to refine the edges with just this cherry picked information, then we're able to come up with this type of narrative that makes our fields feel good. And I, again, think it is very disheartening to hear anybody <laughs> doubt the experiences of ex-Mormons because I do not doubt the experiences of Mormons, their, their spiritual experiences and the ways that the church has likely helped them in their lives. But what it does come down to is the data, the data that those spiritual experiences now get to refine those corners that we can pretend that our spiritual experiences will change the data so that we can just look at it at these small little pieces and not the entire big picture overall of what is being painted in front of us. What is this tapestry that when all of these things are weaved together, what does it tell us? Don, if you're listening to this later, no offense, but multiple sources, Julia, love what you're doing. Okay. So yeah, this is another thing that I thought was really interesting. So Don Bradley mentioned in his presentation that Joseph Bates no mentioned his misstatement concerning the first child born in polygamy. And Bradley is correct when he asserts that the first child was actually born to Heber C. Kimball in 1842. And the child's name was Adelbert Kimball. And he was born to Heber and Sarah Peak Moon. And I looked around and I found that um, on BYU's Nauvoo Community Project, Adelbert was born in October of 1842, or Adelbert would have to have been conceived in January or February of 1842, depending on when in October he was born. My question is, Joseph was unwilling to have sex with his polygamous wives, but other men had sex with theirs. What I'm seeing is Don Bradley is saying, Joseph's only marrying already married pregnant women so that he doesn't have sex with them. Sarah Peak Moon was a single woman. Heber's having sex with her. Louisa Beeman was a single woman. Why are we trying to make it so Joseph doesn't have sex with her when these other polygamous men are having sex with their wives? Is it just because we need to make Joseph, uh, he's the prophet and we have to hold him up to a different standard? Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, so much of the Mormon spin and apologetics is like, okay, Joseph didn't practice polygamy. Okay, he did practice it, but he only practiced it in this one certain very specific ordained of God way. Okay, even if it, okay, maybe he didn't, but if he did it, He's a fallible human and he, he made a couple of mistakes. Uh, you even have apologists like Patrick Mason on Mormon stories a couple months ago who said Joseph's polygamy looked a lot like sin. So you put all of these things together and it kind of paints this picture that faithful Mormons want to admit the least amount of fault possible in Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy. I'm going to get ranty. Hold on. I want to go full screen for this one. Ready? Hear me when I say this, Mormonism has a ghost of eternal polygamy. I did an entire episode with Chelsea Homer on it. Mormonism's foundation in history has so much baked in problems with sexism and racism and a lot of other things. But if we cannot address seriously, what system, what problems, what sexual predatory behaviors that the prophet you can still believe is the most fallible of fallible men ever. And God still called him. But if we can't be honest and accurate about the system that he set up because we want to blame other people, it doesn't make anything about Mormonism healthier. 
it makes Mormonism a faith with a faith-promoting narrative that is untrue, all for people to be conditioned to believe in it, regardless of how it is harming people with its sexism and with the problems that come from the roots of polygamy. So it really irks me the ways that polygamy is talked about and Joseph's polygamy because it does nothing to help Mormons. It does everything to do faith-promoting narratives. Now you can do faith-promoting narratives all day and I wouldn't have a problem with a lot of it. But when we're talking again about history and facts, it irks me that it doesn't do anything to actually help the Mormons who are living it. It doesn't, it, it serves the system. It doesn't serve the person. Yeah. Like I like that you mentioned, um, it's, Patrick Mason. Cause like he thinks that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Like he 100% concerning polygamy. He says, I won't put lipstick on a pig. Like he, He's like, yeah. this is, this is bad. Yeah. So I wish that members would acknowledge this, acknowledge, just acknowledge all the history, all the historical data say, this looks really bad. And this is bad. However, I still believe that Joseph was a prophet. We don't have to skirt around and try to make him something that he wasn't or ignore data or make it fit what we want it to say. Just accept it and then continue belief if you so desire. Because Carolyn Pearson, who wrote Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, I mean, she was a faithful Mormon, still is a faithful Mormon, I guess. And she understands the seriousness that these topics need to be approached with because of the ramifications that come out of these doctrines. And so this is not just a game. This has real implications in people's lives today in 2023, the practices of Joseph Smith and how he set things up. Okay. So yeah, this next clip, I think is just Don talking about rearranging the wives. It's just another reiteration of him giving the date of April 5th. Solidly, that's where everyone's been placing her just April 5th because that's the one that's been said the most. So there's no reason for us to think that it was not April 5th of 1841. So um, here's the traditional order of... Um, Joseph Smith's now the wives, Liza Beeman first. Here's the corrected order when we move Liza Beeman down to the spring of 1842. The first one then becomes, the one who was second on the list is actually first. Now this takes care of the anomalies that we saw earlier. So instead of him starting out with single, then women who've already married, women who've already married and so on, and then going back to marrying single women, he starts out just with marrying women who are already married, and then he shifts later to marrying just single women. And Louisa is one of those later ones. Also, there are no big gaps anymore between the marriage dates. It eliminates the gaps, the other anomaly. So yeah, he's just rearranging the women. He's putting her down as the eighth Nauvoo wife or the 10th one total. I actually don't know why, but he keeps saying, he seems to think that there's a problem that there's a, a six month gap between Louisa and Zina. He doesn't explain why that's a problem or why that needs to be eliminated. He's just moving moving Louisa down because of this home, moving her down on the list to show that Joseph was only marrying already married pregnant women. Like that's just... The, so much better. Um, so the argument goes like that people didn't have sex with pregnant women in the days. Is there is there actually like legitimate evidence? Did is everybody who ever like announced back in the olden days that like, hey, my wife's pregnant or whatever. And everyone goes, oh, sorry, you won't be having sex for six months. Did they all do that? Like, was that like totally so, standard? So I don't know where Don Bradley's getting this. He never gives a source for this idea. Um, I've tried looking. So Queen Victoria was contemporary here. And I was just reading up on her to see if like... Like, there wasn't any information, but she had nine kids. And if they counted up how much time she was pregnant, she was pregnant. If you put them all together for six years, 
And so like, if that's the case, if people can't have sex during their pregnancy, then poor Albert didn't have sex with her for six years. Like I, there's nothing, I couldn't find anything that says that you should not have sex with your pregnant wives. He's basing his argument off of those two things, Joseph Bates Noble's house and this idea that men didn't have sex with pregnant women or their pregnant wives. So like, this one's not true. This one I can't find sources for. Um, and, and, and again, if he did find a source from an 1840, some kind of book, that doesn't mean that Joseph Smith held himself to that standard. He's already breaking a lot of rules or like even uh, <laughs> marrying yeah, other men's wives yeah. in general. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's no reason for us to think that he would hold himself to that standard. Where is Don Bradley basing that information? Yeah, especially when the biblical standard is kind of like you send your your women out to go live in a tent out in the woods when they're menstruating i understand that yeah. so you're losing at least five days a month from that alone I, that's a, the biblical standard and if joseph said that he adhered to that i would understand right but i don't know if there's a biblical standard that you can't have sex with a pregnant I, woman i tried looking at i i only found the stuff about menstruation and now. then when Joseph was writing DNC and it specifically says that we are instituting polygamy, God's like, polygamy is here, but don't forget law of Sarah, that this is to multiply and replenish the earth. But Joseph goes ahead and breaks that on every single occasion that he can. So he's not only not having sex for the purposes of replenishing the earth, He's not having sex for the purposes of, of having a lot of children. In the doing of that with several of the women, he is bearing pregnant women and then stealing that child that doesn't biologically even belong to Joseph to himself so that when Joseph's up in heaven, he will have his 30 wives and children who genetically didn't even belong to them. Poor Henry, poor other guys are just... They're out on their asses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So him marrying, and we'll get to this later, but him marrying other men's wives is stealing the woman and the children that she had with her legal husband. He's just taking them away in the eternity. So like, I also don't understand why John is trying to make that, even if he didn't have sex with any of his already married wives, I still don't like it. It's still gross. Before we started, Julia said that, I hope this goes okay because I don't like confrontation. And I said, I'll do all the confrontation for you because <laughs> I have so much fun. Uh, let's welcome Jonah Barnes into the chat. Jonah, say as many things as you want because on my channel, I am here to display awesome hot takes of Mormon apologists and people trying to do faith promoting spins from the LDS church. If you want to say just about anything that you want, tell us what the Mormon male opinion is and I will definitely throw it on screen. Jonah Barnes is on my channel a lot. On one video that I, and he said, don't do drugs, kids, exhibit A. What a psycho. So oh that's about the level of discourse that Jonah's willing to engage in. And, uh, but to contrast that with a gentleman, Gerardo Samano is also in the chat from Mormon Stories, oh. hey bud. And he said, look what I found, quote, however, at the time, women did not have the right to refuse sex with their husbands and the culture dictated that they always be sexually available to I them. I read that too. I read that too, Gerardo. That's a really good point. So this might even be the opposite of what John Bradley's trying to say. Legal wife or as a wife in general, the women could not refuse sex with their husbands. So like they just always had to be available. And I still feel like that's sort of pressured on women today, just in general, in and out of the church. That's a really good point. Are we making the argument, even if Don's right, I just don't like it. It feels icky, breathtaking analysis. Is that what we're saying? Does anyone get that from us? That that we haven't said that 
even if Don's right. We're saying that Don is very much wrong and has a tiny, tiny, unreliable sample that he's taking from to reorder the wives of Joseph Smith and doing it for a faith-promoting narrative. And that faith-promoting narrative has caused a lot of harm and a lot of uh, sexual deviancy and sexual predation that is still alive and well in the church right now. And if that doesn't make you feel icky, then fuck off. Okay, continue. So if I said that, I want, I totally don't think Don is right. He thinks he's right. His listeners might think he's right. I still don't understand why he thinks this is okay. This is still icky. You should feel ick. You should feel a lot of ick (laughs) because the evidence supports the ick. I love, I, I don't like ick, but if the evidence supports the ick, I'll feel it. That's how I would put it. So thank you for funding this podcast so I can tell more people like Jonah to fuck off. Okay, let's get back into it. <laughs> so, well, it's not necessarily clear from this immediately like um, what uh, Joseph's motive was. It becomes clearer maybe what Joseph's primary motive wasn't, sex. So not only would Zina have been awkwardly pregnant at the time of the marriage, medical advice of the day advised against sex during pregnancy, uh, warning that it could be harmful to the unborn child so if all of this was Joseph Smith's way of getting like the hot babes for quick sex, like immediate sex, um, somebody needed to give the guy lessons because he was doing it wrong, right? Like th- this is not the way to do that. In other words, when you look at the different models, this one doesn't fit. The conclusion people say is obvious from, oh, he practiced polygamy, he was a fraud. Well, have you looked at how he practiced polygamy? Um, I love that last line where he says, have you looked at how he practiced polygamy? So I knew that Joseph was a polygamist as a member of the church. I just thought he was marrying widows and basically that's all. And because they needed help and they couldn't financially support themselves. And then I played read Tom Compton's book and then like seeing how he lived polygamy. I, Joseph to me was not a prophet. And I understand that Todd Compton's still a member of the church. So people fall land on different areas, whether they think Joseph's still a prophet or even Patrick Mason or whether they stopped believing. And for me, it, I stopped believing because of how he was living polygamy. I also wanted to read Philip's comment that said, there's not context where homophobia isn't harmful. There are definitely systems at play within Mormon culture and doctrine that keep people in certain confinements and boxes. And anyone wants to go watch my other video about why I left the Mormon church. I didn't leave the Mormon church because I discovered any of the stuff about around polygamy or you know, reading the CS letter or anything, I knew intuitively that the highest human flourishing cannot exist within this box that tells people that you can only love people of the opposite sex and tells women that their place in heaven will be so much greater if they are a polygamist wife, even if that doctrine had to be abandoned, the fact that that's how it started. So there's just certain confinements and places that, that all of Mormonism from a systemic level is trying to put people in because they think it's for that person's good, for their salvation, because somebody out of your house, out of your body knows better than you are. And you give that autonomy, you give that authority away to somebody else, usually a man, (laughs) almost almost statistically always a man. And I don't believe that the 8 billion people of planet earth right now are able to flourish within that system. So if you want to talk the biggest of biggest contexts, there are practices within Mormonism where we don't need to know if Joseph Smith had sex with every single wife, but we do need to know 
that telling women that their salvation is tied to their sexuality, to them being available to have sex with their husbands, to them being a plural wife, and that the, the afterlife is going to be miserable for them. And if they do not have their families with them, they will be taken away if they don't enter into these types of things. Everything, everything in the entire world always comes back down to people being confined to their roles because somebody else told them that's what it has to be. That's Mormonism to me. And it's something that I reject. Okay. Yeah. So that's, again, we've already discussed this, but he doesn't give a source in any of his presentations that I've seen. He does not give a source for this idea that men did not have sex with their pregnant wives. Where are you getting that, Don? I have no idea. Especially if they're married yeah. back to back to back pregnancies. Yeah. Like you, you're never uh, having sex with your wife. There's other positions besides just like missionary with a hole in the sheet. There's some that would kill the babies. I understand, but uh, look up a physician's book and you'll understand that it's possible. <laughs> okay. So he, um, there's the question is why is Joseph marrying already married pregnant women? And this next clip is him talking about this so the rearranging of the wives like i said puts the married and pregnant women on the top or the beginning of his plural marriage in nauvoo so it's as if he wants to marry women who are as close as possible to giving birth why a sensible reason to infer from this at least as a strong possibility is he wants to have children born soon into these marriages he effectively wants to adopt the children right so joseph revelation has promised him lineal priesthood and lineal blessings that would be passed on to his children. Of course, he could just have more biological children in his polygamy, right? So why is, why is he trying to adopt? Well, this is not the only possible reason, but certainly, again, one possibility would be that he's actually trying to live polygamy and raise up seed through polygamy without having to have sex with women other than Emma. So, not a good argument. Um, that would certainly be sort of adopting these women's children would certainly be one way to do this. So although it's seen as obvious that Joseph institutes Nabu polygamy in order to have sex with many women, his behavior at the outset refutes this, and would better be explained by an attempt to avoid the very sex that was the supposed motive for the polygamy. Again. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What were you thinking? Oh, so many things. So while it seems obvious that he wanted to set up polygamy so that he could sec have sex with these women, hmm, why is it obvious, Don? Tell me. <laughs> why is it obvious? Is it because all the other cult leaders, that's what they do? Is it because that is kind of the very unique marking factor of somebody who is kind of a cult leader? Is that they need to have sex with their followers' wives and their followers' children? And there are so many historical accounts of people saying that Joseph Smith told me that if you come and say, I need your wife, you should say to him, I wish I had more to give you, but I only have one. Uh, if Joseph Smith comes to you and says, I need your money, then you say, here's all I have. I wish I had more to give you. The type of prophet that Joseph Smith was is the type where he would do these Abrahamic tests to his followers and say, Hey, Keeper C. Kimball, I need your wife. And he says, please don't make me. And he says, okay, whatever. All right. And then Kimball thinks it over. It's Kimball, right? I'm not getting that wrong, right? No, it's Kimball and John Taylor, I think. I think it's and two. John, 
Yeah, I think it's two. I'm of pretty them. sure it was all 12 of the apostles. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I've made other videos on this. Trust me, I have it sourced. But anyway, and Kimball spends this whole night crying over it and praying over his beloved wife that he doesn't want to give it to Joseph Smith. And then he finally goes to him and says, okay, I'll give you my wife and stuff. And then, and then Joseph Smith's like, okay, that was actually a test. You passed. I will seal the both of you, husband and wife, together right now. And they're like, yay. And then he's like, but. I can't leave without one of the Kimball girls. The Kimball girls are hot. And that's where Helen Mark Kimball comes into play. <laughs> one of Joseph Smith's very youngest wives. So we're talking about a atmosphere right now where Joseph's authority to be able to take and do whatever he wants, have people cover for him, have people lie for him, think that whatever he's doing must be of God to follow in his footsteps. This entire atmosphere is very much related to Joseph and his authority that he gets to do whatever he wants to do. So you add in so many things like the happiness letter and Joseph Smith saying that, you know, what looks wrong in one context, actually God thinks is right in another. And uh, he desires for us to have joy. And you know what would make me really joyful right now, baby doll, is getting busy with you. We have, again, the historical documents these uh, affidavits from In Sacred Loneliness from Todd Compton that these women are saying, yes, I did indeed have intimate sexual relationships with Joseph Smith. So there is a bounty of evidence that Joseph Smith got what he wanted. So it's funny that Don Bradley is like, it seems obvious that he only wanted sex out of this. Why would he marry pregnant women then? It seemed like he was doing that for the opposite reason, no, it seems like he was doing whatever he wanted and he made up the rules as he went. Also, I think it's interesting because um, Presendia, he, he lists Presendia as possibly pregnant. I don't think the um, historical record says whether she's pregnant or not. And then Agnes Coolbrith was widowed. So I, um, I think it was two months later that Joseph proposed to her or married her. There's no indication that she was pregnant. So like uh, not all these women were, were pregnant. And again, the polygamy is one thing within Mormonism, but the polyandry that oh. this is discussing is a whole other word and a whole other problem with the doctrines that Joseph Smith supposedly set up. Everything about what Joseph Smith set up, as he said, was revealed to him by God. I would like somebody to tell me if there was a rule that God revealed to him that he didn't break. Again, that anything that Joseph wanted, he got. And it was do it first, ask no questions now, <laughs> and find the way to fit this in to my doctrines later. We are talking about such cult-like power to be able to control the narrative, especially for so long, to control people's perceptions around him. Polyandry, hey, I want to well, marry so your wife. No, even you can't, but I. you want to go on a mission? Uh, sure, sure, Joseph. Snatches her up like a pie on the windowsill of seven brides or seven brothers. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, um, so his marriage date to Louisa is 1841, and he doesn't get the revelation for polygamy until 1843. So two years later, and even then, he's still breaking all the rules that he sets in 1843, like marry virgins, have kids, raise up seed. Polyandry breaks all these rules. Totally. And every apologist angle on Fair Mormon, I believe they have that article that's like, is it true that Joseph Smith married other men's wives and it's like well he only did that because they were not in the church and these women desperately wanted to be sealed to a worthy priesthood holder okay 
That would make sense. What about the ones where they were married already to worthy priesthood holders? Why didn't they get to be sealed yeah. to them? Again, going yeah. back to the theme of Mormonism is that somebody else in a higher level of authority knows better for you that you shouldn't be sealed to that husband. You should be sealed to me, the prophet. Don't you want to be sealed to the prophet? Well, I was going to say that the, I also take issue with the, oh, he's marrying these women because their husbands aren't members. The whole idea of the temple is work for the dead. So like just when, when they die, do his work and seal these two together. Like Mary Elizabeth married Adam Leitner, who was not a member of the church. Wait till Adam's dead. Like we do today right. and get them sealed in the temple. Like there's no reason for Joseph to be marrying other men's wives. And I've listened to other apologists before. They have a special wording where they say that it was understood at that time. The understanding at that time was that you had to be sealed to more than one wife in this lifetime to gain exaltation. Have you heard that too? In this life that... to gain exaltation. That was the teaching in Joseph's day. Oh, um, I've heard that with Brigham where he says that I didn't know it was had to be in this lifetime, but Brigham thought less of people that they didn't, if they had four, if they had less than four wives, he's like, you, your salvation won't be as great. Um, I hadn't heard the teaching where you have, they have to be living. Um, but that wouldn't surprise me. He's the one he's a, he's like a BYU professor. And that was his wording that he used. I made another video on it where he talks about how nothing that Joseph Smith did would disqualify him as a prophet. So again, Don Bradley listening to this later, obviously was person who left the church, who something about Joseph Smith polygamy brought him back into it because a realization came about that nothing about Joseph Smith's polygamy was so sleazy that it disqualified him as a prophet all under the context that people are just like, they need to snatch up wives. Like in this lifetime, a man can only gain his exaltation if he has as many women sealed to him as possible, at least two. Again, that does nothing for the apparent restoration that is supposed to be about work for the dead. It has everything to do about power. It has everything to do about like cult control it has everything to do about men getting what they want and subjugating women and other men who apparently are not quick enough to pick up the hottest girls or have the most amount of money to have the most amount of wives that has everything to do with power. And if that is what brings you back into the church, if the institution of polygamy and how it was practiced is something that brings you back into the church, I'm sad. I'm, I'm out of words because the, the very institution, all it tells me is that it is for the aim of power, self-aggrandizement, ego, and not for the things it also says that it's for like the redeeming of the dead, like the sealing of the families. Mormonism today has everything to do with families, temple work. They are a church that's so into genealogy, pours so many millions of dollars into sealing families together. But the very church that Joseph Smith started was about breaking up families, sending them on missions, taking other people's wives to seal them to himself, other people's biological children, and sealing those to himself. So can't have it all of the ways. You just can't have it all the ways, I'm saying. The church today is not anything like what Joseph Smith implemented or practiced. And let's check in with Jonah. He said, Don has new discoveries about this history we value. Nah, let's just whine about Hollywoodian versions of polygamy. I don't even understand that because I think um I think everyone's getting it here besides you, Jonah. <laughs> All right, let's welcome back to uh, the show. It is Ward Radio. Ward Radio, take it away. So um, when you pictured 
Joseph Smith anticipating marrying his first Nauvoo wife. What I want to know is which of these did you picture? Uh, which one of these do you picture? Which of these did you picture? Okay. Uh, in other uh, words, no. <laughs> how pregnant did you picture her when you pictured Joseph Smith choosing his first Nauvoo poor wife? Uh, not, pregnant. Uh, not pregnant. The not correct all. image that you should have had is the third, I believe it's the third one from the right there, the seven months pregnant. If you go to the next slide. Okay. Okay. Oh, suddenly this gets very less not sex. Oh, <laughs> uh -huh, right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay. So Zionist... I'm, ima I'm imagining like the baddest chicken Nauvoo, <laughs> like just super hot. He was uh -huh. like, I'll take that one. Hmm. For the record, I think pregnant women are beautiful. Um, so Zina was seven months pregnant when she married Joseph. Again, I don't know why Don has the idea that you can't have sex with pregnant women. Uh, Mary Elizabeth, I think, was full nine months pregnant, if not if eight or nine, when when Mary Elizabeth married Joseph. So, yeah. and just for history's sake, I know for sure that he sealed Zina's child, that was Henry's, to himself. Correct. Um, I think I want to say Zebulon, but I don't actually remember his name. But yeah, um, the are you saying Henry's child would have been Joseph's? Yeah, in the afterlife. That, yeah, I think that's that the children that, that were in the belly that those would be claimed by Joseph Smith in the afterlife. Well, I I kind of think even the ones that were already born, if there were any in these relationships, would belong to the one that the woman sealed to. But yeah, but for sure after because they're they're born in the covenant. And she's sealed to Joseph, so that child would have been Joseph's, even though it's really Henry's. I cannot believe that. Again, family-centered church so much that they expect that in the afterlife where everything, so much money is just thrown into temple work to seal families. And the very prophet of the church, he himself was in the business of separating families in the eternities. In ways that can't be undone. And then I just also wanted to point out that there's no risk of babies. That is perfect. A little bit of cowgirl lube and no babies and Joseph could be going to town. And Chris also said, and it's not just intercourse, icky to think about it, but Joseph Smith may have had a thing for, oh no, I can't say that on my screen. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a and really good point. There are other sexual acts that can be done. If you really think that sex during pregnancy is going to harm the baby, there are other sexual acts that can be performed that won't cause harm to the baby. Studied different cultures around the world. There are some cultures who, certain tribes and cultures where women would have sex with as many men as possible to yes. conceive. And then throughout the pregnancy, because they believed that that would help fortify the child to have like the healthiest chance. Yeah, I think so, that they thought that the sperm, like it was multiple sperm that helped. So if this guy was a good piano or violin or this one was a good artist, she'd have sex with as many to give their kid the best chance. I think that's how that the understanding was. I think just generally, we're if we don't have any hard and fast evidence that the cultural rules of the day were that people didn't have sex with their pregnant wives, they just respected that that was they're going to hurt the baby or something when, as we established, that women were under this order that they had to submit themselves sexually to their husbands, regardless of being pregnant. That's already there on the table. And that if we had some evidence that men just didn't have sex with pregnant women at the time, that would be one thing. But every single <laughs> law and every single revelation that God Almighty told Joseph to follow, he broke. 
if it wasn't even a law from God Almighty, what are the chances that Joseph Smith respected that? Don, I'm waiting for your answer. We love in the nuance of comment section, people sharing spicy deeds. So (laughs) yeah, have you ever heard of hormones too? So maybe the women were uh, having plenty of sex with their already established husbands and Joseph Smith's coming in. He's like, I've heard the bed creaking a mile away. Get me some of that action. That's not out of the realm of possibility. All right. Sylvia Sessions. Tell me about her. Okay, so Sylvia Sessions was married to a man named Windsor Lyon. I got to go to her their little shop, their drugstore in Nauvoo. But anyway, so she had four children. The first three died really young, I think even in their infancy, if not in their childhood years. But one of them survived. And I know this isn't the story. She wasn't pregnant when Joseph married her. However, um, one of her children she thought came from Joseph. She thought that Joseph fathered her. So she named her Josephine. And then when just before she passed away, she confessed to Josephine that you're the daughter of Joseph Smith, except for DNA evidence tells us today that she is actually Windsor's daughter. So this Sylvia Sessions or Sylvia Lyon is like, that's what Joseph was going for. He's marrying these women who are already married so that if he gets them pregnant, they belong to the husband or that it looks like he's not sleeping around. I feel like that's a good case study for um, Joseph and his sexual relations with them and and why he was marrying already married women. Because if there are single women, as as the argument would go, it's like if he just wanted single hot babes, then he wouldn't have married that. No, it's a lot more complicated than that. There are hot babes who are already pregnant. There are hot babes who are already married. There are old widows. There are all kinds of people. And if you, again, the foundational part of Mormon doctrine around polygamy is that the greater number of wives that you can have and collect the the order of heaven is not monogamy it is polygamy because the order of heaven is the magnitude of wives that you can have directly correspond to your estate in the afterlife okay so this is this is just a clip about talking about other men's wives and i and i do i want to just say here it's really hard for me to listen to word radio however listening to some of these guys questions i don't know all their names but they ask really good questions and they like have concerns where they should be concerned, or at least if the guy in the yellow, I don't, I don't know anyone's names, but anyway, you can play the clip and we can react to it. Joseph is actually deliberately choosing women who are not only pregnant, but like about to give birth. Hmm. So then quick your question, like, why is he marrying married woman? But also like, why is he marrying very pregnant women? Right. It's almost as if, he wants a baby to be born soon after he marries this woman, right? So in the understanding of, in the medical understanding of the 1800s, you did not have sex during pregnancy, especially as you were well into pregnancy because it could be harmful to the mother and the child, okay? So if Joseph Smith is looking for immediate sex with like the hottest chicks in Nauvoo, like he's doing it wrong in Quaker. You needed to like give him lessons or something, right? Because yeah. like, like somebody <laughs> needed to teach this guy because he he doesn't know. He he's just, using their pregnancy he as doing. as proof that he's not having sex with them because that oh, would have been taboo. Okay. I mean, maybe, right? So so we're left to kind of infer from the pattern of his behavior. He he clearly this is deliberate, hmm. right? So whenever people are like, well, wow. Joseph was marrying other men's wives. They're leaving out a, a lot of context because that makes it sound like he's stealing why like 
the husband's in the back chopping wood and he has her in the kitchen. He's like, come on, a quickie before he comes back in. So like, that's what I'm imagining. But this is totally, totally different. Okay, so he has something in his mind going on. We're not quite sure what it is, but you probably know. Actually, I I, I think I'm I'm pretty (laughs) sure I'm leading. I'm telling you, this is what the evidence is showing me is that he knew that he was going to be accused of the worst, just like he is accused of the worst nowadays of just being some kind of predatory sexual person who's using the doctrine of eternal marriage and polygamy in order to get access to a bunch of hot babes and start some big polygamous orgy that all of the Nor'eastern journalists get to write about in sensational ways. But instead of just pursuing booty, he's actually specifically marrying women that he knows will represent an absolute lack thereof when it gets out, but nobody, especially not the anti-Mormons, have done any kind of true research into this subject and noted this pattern until Don Corleone Bradley descends from on high, the prodigal professor of polygamy, <laughs> all right, decides the sultan of a studious swat, writes the book <laughs> on the subject and proves it was otherwise. This is amazing. Mm. No, no, not at all. Oh, yeah. So, like, I just think it's silly where he's like him marrying pregnant women just proves that he's not doing this for sex. When you could also say he's marrying pregnant women so that he can have sex and have it be covered up because she's already married. And if he gets her pregnant, it's just tell them it's the husband's like this argument. This whole thing falls apart to me because like this doesn't make any sense. Their excitement about it just was funny to me that they're like, oh, my goodness, you've proved this whole thing wrong. And all right. So Cardin is like. Joseph Smith knew that people are going to talk shit about him. Then, as they do all the way till today, it just reminds me of the Tim Ballard thing that's going on this week, that so many people are like, oh, you only want to cancel him because you have this X political bias against him running for Senate, or you have this X bias because you support sex trafficking or pedophilia. Things are not mutually exclusive, okay? Argumentation 101 is you can disagree with the practices and the harmful abuses that somebody does. And it doesn't mean that you only are trying to to say those things because you disrespect the other things that they are doing. It's that if you don't want to be called out, Tim Ballard, Donald Trump, Joseph Smith, it is not a hit job to say, we don't like that you did these things and you shouldn't be able to run for this office or have this position of authority. The onus is not on us to keep quiet about it. The onus is on the predator in the first place to not do those actions. So we have to shift the blame to the person in the position of authority who is asking for our trust should not be doing things like marrying teenagers, like marrying other men's wives. If you wanted to be seen as a prophet, Joseph Smith, you needed to act like a prophet. It is the onus is not on us to believe you regardless of the evidence. It is you to act in a prophet-like manner so that the evidence leads us to believe you are a prophet. Um, yeah, it just is, it's, a, it's an argument that could go either of any ways. And the faith promoting way is to look at it. There's this one parameter that Joseph decided to put himself within. And as we know, that is not the first time that he tried to have sex with somebody that wasn't his wife, Emma. So time and time and time and time again, throughout Joseph's lifetime from whatever, if you, if I gave the most charitable spin to the, to the apologist narratives about Fanny Alger with Joseph Smith sleeping with his, you know, 15, 16 year old live in servant adopted daughter type person 
in the barn and his right-hand man scribe to the book of Mormon, um, co-president of the church, Oliver Cowdery, calling it a dirty, nasty, filthy affair when he was writing a letter to his brother. Even if you wanted to dismiss all of that evidence, there is a pattern of behavior regardless. And again, Mormon apologetics, the only tool that they have is to make you look through things through a little lens that big, look at just one tiny puzzle piece, smooth the edges. But if we're looking at a pattern of behavior, it is clear that Joseph expected because he had this presumed connection with God, with the divine, starting with his treasure digging days, this reputation that he has built up, that he has this special authority, this special mantle from God, the most likely conclusion to go with from the beginning to the end of Joseph's life is all of the things that he did that make him look like every other sexual predator who says that they have that connection with the divine, that they do speak for God. All of those different patterns that we see in other types of con men that exist within Joseph's. If we are talking about a God who loves us so much, what are we talking about? What are we talking about, Mormons? We're talking about a God who loves us so much. He chose a savior, his only begotten son, to come to earth, to die for us on the cross, put up with all of the Garden of Gethsemane, put up all of that, put this plan in motion and gave us a prophet to restore it that was going to be indistinguishable from all the other people who are not prophets, who cause all kinds of harm that is indistinguishable within his one true faith. That doesn't tell me that God's love is uh, evident because he did give us these brains to put pieces together. He did say that this one true church is going to look indistinguishable, whether it's the book of Abraham from a fraud or whether it's his own prophets, sexual practices that lead to oceans of trauma in the ways that God practice it. And even, even the best faith interpretation of saying this was a new restored church and people were just working out the kinks. That's not good enough. The kinks are still here in 2023, the doctrines of eternal polygamy, the harm of people being really upset about the ceilings that go on in Mormonism today. If, you, if you're a woman in the LDS church and you get sealed to your husband and he dies, other men don't want to date you in the church because they want to only have a, a marriage and children with somebody who they will be able to have in the afterlife and have children that belong to them in the afterlife and not the, the widow's previous husband. So if there is a God who loves us so, so much, it is not evident by the prophets that he sent. And it is fully within every single human's ability to look at the evidence and reject it without any shame. Ramifications are the name of the game in Mormonism. It'd be really nice if this is just an old dead cult that is just like, you know, the burned over district, just something popped up. And in history, let's talk about this one little thing that just influenced these people at this one period of time. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about things that have real world ramifications on people's lives all day, every day. Leave the church, leave it alone. No, um, these doctrines haunt people in and outside of the church. There's ramifications for days, oceans of trauma, oceans of other types of Mormon breakoff sex who practice polygamy in the same ways that Joseph did. And you can watch documentaries right now that will give you nightmares about ways that polygamy is practiced. So all of this has real world consequences. It's really cute, really nice to just try to find a spin that Joseph Smith tried to do things in the most upfront, awesome way as possible that he was just God's number one go-to guy. That's not what the evidence shows. The evidence shows that he was an authoritarian dick. I love having my own podcast. 
<laughs> I can say whatever I want. All right. Should we move on to the next clip? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to put into context or, or list off for the husbands. Of the 11 women Joseph Smith married that were already married, seven of them were married to active members of the church. Totally believing active members. There's not that caveat that these women were, Joseph was marrying them so that they can get to heaven. Anyway, so that's, theologically, that doesn't make any sense to me. One of them was married to a disaffected member. So that, that one kind of makes sense. Presentius' husband had stopped believing in, I think, 1838, around like the Curlin Bank stuff. And then three of the husbands or three of the women were married to non-members. So that made sense to me where it's like Mary Elizabeth Leitner wanted to go to heaven. It, it makes sense in a way, but at the same time, if work for the dead exists, why not just get his mm -hmm. work done after he dies and Edward Sayers and John Cleveland. Anyway, so like just pointing out that not all these women were, were in that situation, that their husbands were not members or disaffected from the church. The apologetics around it, again, they really do not square with what the doctrines were supposedly established to be for in the first place. The polyandrous husbands. Oh, yes. Children. So if, if Joseph is... It's as if he wants children to be born in these marriages as soon as, as soon as possible. Yeah. And so maybe that's actually what he wants, right? So if Joseph has this idea of raising up, he's supposed to raise up seed through polygamy. Yeah, from Jacob too. Well, does he have to do that by sleeping with the women and then they like over across nine months, they come up with a baby or could <sighs> he basically adopt children I have into never this lineage heard by this marrying version. them just before they give birth. <laughs> this is awesome. Right? Yeah. So mm. if you Whoa. look at like... The <laughs> this is literally like blowing my mind because it's always presented as like one of the two, He polygamy is bad and it's for sex or it never happened and it's a lie. And you're like, well, here's the third <laughs> version and it makes a lot of sense. We have put up with 200 years of lies, nearly 200 years of lies about polygamy. And finally, Dawn just blows the doors off a 200-year-old castle of lies. So theologically, Joseph's stealing other men's children and other... I, yeah, it's messy. Um, and also, as we know from the census records that... People who have this apologetic spin, I was told this my entire life growing up, that when they moved to Utah, of course they need to institute polygamy. Let's, I mean, I wasn't taught anything about Nauvoo, Kirtland polygamy, anything. We left that in the old country. <laughs> but I was always taught that, yes, it was for raising up of seed. That makes sense. You know, polygamists have a lot of children. Turns out, fun fact, polygamy actually limits the number of children and poverty especially plays a big role men traveling around not being able to give as many resources to their polygamous wives in utah and so monogamous marriages in utah actually produced more children than the polygamist ones so that is cold hard facts and data that directly counter what the supposed reason for instituting it was in the first place. So under every single solitary circumstance within Mormon doctrine that you can ask for, law of Sarah, DNC, Joseph Smith, you should only ask your wife first if you can marry them and she has to approve all subsequent wives. First wife gets to approve them. 
Joseph Smith didn't do that. He didn't do it to raise up seed. He changed the Book of Mormon and changed the documents from the early church that first said, polygamy, abomination. And then God's like, mm, take that out. Polygamy, A-okay. Because I realized that, you know, Joseph, I didn't realize it would be so easy for you actually to get whatever you wanted. So have some more, have some more wives. Take out that other stupid stuff that I was working on, Joseph. Take that part out. Every single part of that has been changed. And then down to the, the part about raising up seed. If Joseph can't just come out and say that he is having sex with other women and the, for the intended purpose of having children with them as the other, if we already know that that's what Joseph Smith's successors and the other prophets did, that they were also marrying teenagers with large age gaps to have sex with them, to have children by them. Why wouldn't it be okay for Joseph? Why are we, why do we have this special reservation that Joseph Smith couldn't have been doing that? I understand he was under a lot of political pressure. Now, is it our job? Is the onus on us to spin the narrative that people would have, if they knew how much sex or Joseph was having with his polygamous wives, that the church wouldn't have been able to continue? Is, it, is the onus on us? Is the onus on the culture at the time to reject something like that? Or is the onus on God and Joseph Smith to only institute practices that would actually help further the development and spiritual development of his children. And now that we know that the polygamy doctrine has been so wholeheartedly abandoned because it didn't help further the, uh, the number of children born in, in, in these polygamous higher law marriages, it didn't help the church. It actually hindered it and made them scatter out West and have to go to other colonies and be to this day, you know, Cardin saying here, like, these anti-Mormon lies, these, these ideas around polygamy for so long. Okay. If God didn't want a church that was going to be hindered by all of these slanders or whatever, these lies about polygamy that would, that would later have to be abandoned. Everything from every different angle was an instituted thing that hindered the progress of God's children that he loves so much. And regardless, Mormons will always have a spin where the onus is on everyone else to just reinterpret it so that we can still believe that Joseph Smith is God's one true mouthpiece on, on earth. Where I, again, I believe that the onus should be on a God that makes his prophet look actually prophetic, look actually dignified and moral, and actually do things that his later successors would do that should be replicated. And that the church can go to all the four corners of the earth as it is supposed to do, which it basically hasn't really done if it's less than a half of a percentage of the global population. And if part of that reason is because of the polygamy and the practices of Joseph Smith, not acting like a prophet and having so much seedy behavior, it, it, it is very frustrating to be told as an ex-Mormon, like by Don, Don Bradley, that you, you feel like you've graduated. Okay. Congratulations. You just have to learn more. There is no spin to believing in a God who puts the onus on us to reinterpret this as okay as profit behavior when there are much better people to look up to than Joseph Smith and much better prophets then and now that we could believe God's one true religion and God's one true aspirations. Aspirations is the word I want to focus on here for his children, especially his fucking women, his fucking daughters. 
the aspirations of the Mormon God for his daughters could be so much better. And the onus is on us as members to believe regardless of all of the evidence and sexual predatory behavior. And I won't have it. Yeah. Polygamy doesn't add more kids to the community. It puts women in poverty. Like there's a number of ways that would be harmful to men as well. They have all the, they have a certain number of kids that they have to, they have to go to these different homes. Like it's not good for anybody. Polygamy. It doesn't make sense for God to implement that at all. Yeah. Don said, I've tried sending a super chat several times and it's not working. Oh, Don yelled, sweetie. <laughs> My Venmo is at Caribbe. D-A-R-E-H-B on Venmo.com. It's tax deductible in the United States. All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for uh, being in the chat as well. Again, super chats are totally welcome and they help fund this channel and this podcast. All right. Next one. Sure. Okay. Who do the children belong to? Okay, so this, I think, is the one where he asks the good question. So you can just play it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what we want to get to. Okay, so I, I have a question, though, on that, that uh, hypothesis. So if he was doing this to raise up children and he was basically using pregnant, pregnant women to, um, to get married to them, to get sealed to them so that they could already have these children so there was no, you know, no sexual relations necessary, were the children his? Is that did they belong to him technically, like spiritually, well, eternally? I mean, that's, okay, it's that's, more of a born into the covenant situation. Yeah, I would yeah that's obviously yeah. not what he was going that, for. That that is a theological question, and I do find those interesting. But I'm not a theologian; I'm a historian, right? Okay. And so, but if that's the reason, if that's the reason that we're saying, then we kind of have to figure out whether because if they still belong to the other family, to the other husband. Yeah, um, I, I don't well, think he was sequestering religiously children well, into some kind of odd yeah. birthright. So I, it's I think this kind of answers it. Leveret marriage right. involves like raising up seed for your brother. I, I imagine right. this who's would be dead though. Yeah, it, in which case one of these people was. I think right. it would probably be something where he's like, "Hey, we're Jacob too." Talks about raising up seed to the Lord, right? right. And I'm all and I'm so, all for that. Yeah. Well, so in the interest of time, like. let's move yeah. on from that question okay. because so, we have limited. Um, yeah, so I, it's interesting that that question never gets answered. I really appreciate the yellow shirt guy. That's a really great question, theologically. Like, what what about these seven men, or even all of them, all 11 of them? Wh- whose children, who do they belong to in the next life? And, like, um, the there's the one woman on that, or the list that he showed. I think I think he married four widows. But, like, with Agnes Colbert, the leveret marriage, I think, is that you marry the person whose spouse has died, and then whatever children you have with that person, they belong to the other man. So it's like, you're still, he's still having kids, even though he's dead. I think that's how that works. So like, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm all for that. Like, that's fine. But like, but him marrying other men's wives and then taking their kids in the eternities is not, and I don't think it's sitting well with him either. I think that's why he's asking these questions. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And what was Don's answer to that again? (laughs) I'm not a theologian. I'm a historian. So I thought that was also interesting. Uh. Yeah, because under like the current ways of how Mormonism ceilings go right now, it is my understanding from doing an entire video on Carolyn Pearson's book on ghosts of eternal polygamy that if you want to seal a child to you is if they're in your belly and you are sealing, you're doing a marriage ceremony, any woman, man, together, sealed, The baby that is in that woman's belly belongs to the sealed couple, regardless of 
you know, your husband died and he, he, uh, impregnated you, you know what I mean? That's, that's my understanding as it is right now. Somebody can correct me on that one. Um, I just will say also, like, I, I have a daughter. Um, I'm no longer a member of the church because I'm queer and the church doesn't like that. So they kicked me out. But anyway, um, so now my, my daughter, if my husband gets married and sealed in the temple, my daughter will belong to, to her, not, not me. So anyway, so that's, what's happening with Joseph marrying these other women who are pregnant. One really yeah, quick thing. We know he was, he was doing it. Run really quick thing. So what you're basically saying is we don't know the reason, but we know it was not to have sex with our, a bunch our, of women. Our data doesn't strongly um, tell us what the reason was, but it does a really good job of telling us what the reason would not have been. Yes. Okay. 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 Wow. okay. What? Yeah. Um, so I, again, I just think that's interesting. He's really pushing that because he's marrying already married pregnant women. The reason's obviously not sex. I, I 100% disagree with that. Yeah. Flashback to Kara of an hour ago, who was also saying, um, Joseph Smith pretty much got whatever he wanted. I need to look up the quote right now, but his, his right hand man were saying after he died, giving speeches, saying that the order that Joseph Smith set up was that if Joseph Smith asks for your wife, you say, I wish I had more to give you, but here's the only one that I have. So mm -hmm. it is completely within the realm of possibilities that somebody who has a lifetime of doing con man like behavior was found guilty before a judge for being proven that he didn't have powers that he said that he had. At every turn you take, Joseph Smith gets to escape responsibility for his con man-like behavior. And this is one on polygamy specifically because it still exists in Mormon doctrines that affect people till today. It is important to get down to the nitty gritty on these types of things because people's families, faithful or not, still hang in the balance with what he set up. And... May I also just add, I wanted to read a couple. Oh, I wanted to read more super chats. Too bad I don't have any. Mm, darn it. But I will read. Um, I love this comment that said, you'd think your daughter would belong to herself. No, kidding. that's what I'm all about. It's yeah. like everything is about ownership. And no, but women uh, can't be women can't be saved unless they're sealed to a man, right? So like, yeah, yeah. Another messy part of Mormon theology. But yeah, I, that's great. <laughs> Church historian Kyle S. McKay, no background oh. in history. He's the church historian and he's a lawyer. And plenty of, so when Dodd Bradley's like, I'm not a theologian, I'm a historian. When have people ever stayed in their lane? <laughs> Give us an educated <laughs> guess, Don. Did you say it obviously looks like he uh, practiced polygamy just to get it sex? But no, 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 it's not that way. I think the church used to have actual historians as church historians until they were historians and not apologists. And so they stopped having historians. <laughs> yeah. Can I rant on that for a second? Yeah, I yeah. love that's my favorite rant of all, because that has to do with the Rod Meldrum cult. The actually I'm going to have a video coming out next week about Tim Ballard is also part of the, the Rod Meldrum faction oh, of the LDS church. Oh, boy. Yeah. He speaks at all their conferences and stuff. And what Greg does he Manson, speak on? What does Tim Ballard speak on? Yeah, at the... Oh, I'll give everyone a little bit of preview right now. Um, Tim Ballard speaks on this thing called the American Covenant oh, and yes. ties 
in the ideas about how the promised land of the United States, this U.S. soil, was always supposed to be a covenant land set apart for the for Lehi's family, for that set of Jews to come over and the tribes of like Manasseh and things. So that after the 12 tribes, I'm, I'm going into too much details, explain it in the video later, but long story short, that this U.S. soil is under covenant with God, just as Israel is under covenant. It's a covenant land with, with the Jews. This land is also under covenant with God. We know that from the Book of Mormon and that the, the patriotism that often comes in with a lot of these conservative leaning, heavily leaning uh, Mormon factions, that this is the greatest land of all time is very scripturally based and based around the idea that the Book of Mormon, this is a set apart land and that Joseph Smith's restoration had to come in to restore the land because the Lamanites, the Native Americans, they fucked up. They fell. They were supposed to be God's one chosen people. And the reasons that they were genocided, trail of tears, all of that was because they did not live up to the covenant and were not able to be blessed. So God took the land and took their white skin from them. And Joseph Smith, who is from apparently the tribe of Joseph, Joseph from the 10 tribes of Israel, he is the other part of the piece that it had to be from the tribe of Joseph. Joseph Smith had to restore the American covenant on the American land and everything to do with the foundations of America, U.S. history, all those foundational events of the pilgrims, civil war, revolutionary war, Columbus, everything was foresaw by, by Nephi and the Book of Mormon prophets. And that means that America is the most covenant land and Ballard's like, this didn't happen in Guatemala or Mexico. That's how you know that it was in America. This is the chosen land. So weaving in a lot of those ideas about American exceptionalism, manifest destiny, supported by Book of Mormon scripture. Does that make sense? So I have I have a lot to say, and I just put out a, a an Instagram post right before we did this. I uh, watched like six speeches of Tim Ballard's on on the Book of Mormon evidence website that's run by Rod Meldrum and cataloged all of his opinions on everything that he has to say. And uh, long story short, everything to do with his sex trafficking work, you will not understand Tim Ballard if you do not understand his Mormonism first. And he said so many direct quotes of things like, a child can never truly be healed from sex trafficking if they do not have the atonement of Jesus Christ through Mormonism. So I have hours and hours and hours of, uh, of, uh, of videos that I'm ready to release next week on that subject, but I am off track. But basically, Tim Ballard, he speaks at those same conferences that are hosted by Rod Meldrum, who was my famous last episode of Mormon Stories. I've done other videos about them. Hannah Stoddard. Hannah Stoddard also is like the president of the Joseph Smith Foundation. I think that's what it's called. She was on Ward Radio a couple weeks ago talking with these men. She does not believe Joseph Smith was a treasure digger. Not once, never touched it. And this leads to my original point for your answer, Julia. Thank you, everyone. I'm staying on track perfectly. Hannah Stoddard and her dad, again, all in this faction, this, this cult within a cult, I would say, within Mormonism of Tim Ballard and Rod Meldrum uh, and H Hannah Stoddard, that they believe in this progressive view of his history in, in Mormonism that was corrupted under Leonard Arrington who trained all of the future historians and things like rough stone rolling and Richard Bushman 
those were all because they had a progressive lens on telling the truth, telling history as it was presented to them. And that was all under like a socialist uh, corrupted lens that those people were like core whore. They were like antichrist. So I've read all of their books. Their point is that there was a, there was a break off with Leonard Arrington where the history of the church started to be that Joseph Smith was a treasure digger in the effort to be able to give people more of this information that was coming out and at least try to inoculate them and, and tell them what it was. But Leonard Arrington, he voted for FDR. It's a very big point of their book. <laughs> that we cannot trust people who voted for the socialist FDR. So Leonard Arrington, bad, bad guy, progressive faction of church history. And then there's the traditionalist faction of church history. Joseph Smith was never a treasure digger. That is part of the occult. Anna Stoddard says that she would not believe Joseph Smith if he was a treasure digger. And she says, I, Hannah Stoddard, know more about and have better spiritual experiences than, than somebody who would involve themselves in treasure digging. And that would disqualify <laughs> him from being a prophet. So it is very core to that testimony. It's kind of a giveaway that if he was a treasure digger, that they wouldn't believe in him at all. So they must reinterpret everything to believe that he wasn't a treasure digger. So wow. there's, the, there's the, the progressive faction, which even for the church, it's not really that progressive. <laughs> And then the traditionalist faction that uh, doesn't believe in uh, evolution. They look to all of the prophets with the most fundamentalist, literalist interpretation of the scriptures. And if none of the prophets believed in evolution, then they can't believe in evolution either. Uh, BYU has been corrupted. They believe in evolution. They teach evolution at BYU. And one of the speakers at their conference says, and it just so happens that when you go to like the earth sciences department, when you walk up the stairs, what do they have on the stairs? A snake, like Satan, like this is their evidence, you know, that oh, the, the, the church teaching evolution is, is very much corrupted. So that is the ex explanation on the traditionalist faction versus the progressive faction. And if we're looping this in with um, apologists and, and ways that people spin things, I think that Cardin from Ward Radio, because of how much he was agreeing with Hannah Stoddard in their interview about Joseph Smith's treasure digging, and his, his videos with, with Johnny Harris and, and Don Bradley. I don't think Cardin accepts anything but the traditionalist view. Correct me if I'm wrong. Anyone, Cardin, you can come to my comments and tell me differently. I think for sure that Cardin is part of this traditionalist faction, this very conservative, anti-everything that has to do with progress, aka progressive values. So you're saying progressive, you're defining progressive as in Mormon historians are just sharing factual data and that's progressive? They call it the progressive historians too. That, that That's their language. They call themselves the traditionalist faction versus the progressive faction. Wow. So, so like in my interview with Rod Meldrum and John DeLynn, one of the biggest confusions during that, because that was kind of one of the first times that I'd, I'd heard that, that Rod Meldrum, like he, you don't accept that Joseph Smith was a treasure digger. What about the affidavit from uh, like Isaac Hale? What about, what about this? What about that? It's all rejected because they believe, and Cardin believes this too, I know for sure, that all anti-Mormonism started with Mormonism unveiled. Oh, that's being right. Published. We did say that. We just watched that yeah. yesterday, your, the Rod Meldrum one. Yeah. yeah. So all of the lies that you are could ever hear about Joseph Smith are, are, yeah, are, are based off of this book that were taken from different affidavits about Joseph Smith's treasure digging. And are you going to believe people who hated Joseph Smith and wanted to drink his blood and hated his guts? And that is one of the main sources for 
like Leonard Arrington and for Roughstone Rolling oh and for boy. Richard Bushman. Yeah. So they have been corrupted. Their books, they call him, they call them literally Coral Whore. And they rope in a lot of politics about how Arrington voted for FDR. Oh <laughs> and that proves, I mean, they're like, say less. Like you voted for FDR. Do we need to tell you? Call him Coral Whore and stuff. What I think is the most interesting thing about this, Tim Ballard stuff that's coming up right now is such a big deal to people that I see this civil war coming because these two factions cannot coexist very kindly with each other. There's Heartlanders, Rod Meldrum, Tim Ballard, Hannah Stoddard, anyone else who wants to throw their name in there who believe that the Book of Mormon literally happened on this American soil that Lehi's family landed in the land of inheritance, which was in Florida and that the little Kimura was literally up in Palmyra, Zarahemla, like you mentioned earlier, was literally out in Nauvoo, that they have a map of these things literally happening. But under fair LDS and more, more mainstream Mormon apologetics, I would guess Don Bradley probably is not a heartlander, but most other people believe that it happened somewhere in Mesoamerica, which is a lot more convenient to just say, we know for sure that the hill Kimura does not have these million person battles around it like the Book of Mormon said that it did. So we're going to move the Hill Camorra and say that it has to be somewhere in the jungles of Mesoamerica. We just haven't found it yet, right? They, The traditionalist faction go with exactly what Joseph Smith said. If he said it, that's what we'll believe. The Book of Mormon took place right here in the Americas. That's what we'll believe. So it's my biggest fascination. I'm really excited that I'm able to talk about this stuff on a live stream that has almost nothing to do with it because it's my obsession for the video because so many people are talking about Tim Ballard and I'm like, whoa, you guys have to slow down because you will not understand Tim ba Ballard and what he believes until you understand the type of Mormonism that he practices. Your parents are Heartlanders too, right? Yeah. My parents are big, big, big Heartlanders. Yeah. I was raised, especially the, the very patriotic America, rah, rah, rah. Uh, is how I was raised. So the Tim Ballard, especially faction of what he believes is how I was raised. And so that's why I am specifically excited to talk about that stuff. All right. Don Bradley said, Kara, I will Venmo you if you'll read my comments. But when I tried for my phone just now, it didn't work. I would love to read your comments. Kara B, C-A-R-A-H-B. That is not just for Don. That is for anybody who wants it. Okay. Um, next clip. Okay. Zina, we've made our way to Zina. Oh, actually just play the clip and then I'll talk. Yeah. So why did he marry her? if She was married. Yeah. yeah why? Let's, let's, okay. Great question. We'll, let's go to that. And okay. why did he marry her? So, because she, when she was pregnant. So yeah. I just like that. Cause it's like, she's already married and she's pregnant to a member of the church. I think Henry served also like around eight missions. Anyway, there's no, anyway, there's no reason. Okay. So, um, one of the beefs that, or I don't know if it's a beef, but, um, one of the reasons Don Bradley reached out to me is because he, of the information that I was sharing about Zina. So, um, I cited the work of Todd Compton when concerning Zina and according to the family tradition, and this family tradition was kept by the granddaughter. Um, I don't know how to say her name. Oa, Oa Jacobs Cannon. So according to the family tradition, Joseph proposed to Zina three times. Once before her marriage to Henry, which happened on March 7th, once immediately afterwards, because they had invited, they had asked Joseph to perform the wedding. He said, yes, didn't show up. I think it's because he was upset. And so John C. Bennett married them instead. And then two weeks later, they're like, or a few weeks later, they're like, Joseph, why, where were you? Why didn't you come to our wedding? And then he says, you're supposed to be with me. 
And then later he proposes to her again, this time through Dimmick, uh, talking about an angel with a flaming sword. And then she married Joseph on October 27th of 1841. And I can't find a publication date um, for this family history um, by Oa. Um, so Don Bradley says it's in 1980, and there's no reason for me to think that it wasn't. But he says that this is bad information that can't be relied upon, and it came from, quote, the worst historical source he has seen anyone cite. So I don't know why it's the worst historical information. I don't think there's anything that combats it. To me, the whole idea of Zina is that he's not delaying his marriage to her because um, Don Bradley wants to say he was putting it off and putting it off, so he just decided to marry already married pregnant women. But in this family story of Zina, he's going to her and going to her and going to her, and he's not delaying anything. In fact, the family says that he proposed to her in 1840, and she said no because she was in love with Henry. And if she had said yes, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't have married her in 1840. So this doesn't feel like a delaying of his relationship to Zina. Yeah, I think you debunked that hardcore. Yeah, the angel with the flaming sword story. Can you tell that any in any more detail off the top of your head for people who um, want a little more context on that? Yeah, so the angel actually appears to several different women. Um, well, they don't have a sword. <laughs> the line that he uses, hey, if you don't marry me, an angel with a flaming sword is going to... Um, put me out of my place. Uh, I can't remember the exact words, but he'll lose his life and his station or something like that. Mm -hmm. So he says it to Zina. He says it to Mary Elizabeth Rollins. He says it to a few other women. And normally it's a drawn sword, but one of the women in a newspaper calls it a flaming sword. So I just think that's more entertaining. Um, but yeah, Maybe he had herpes. This... <laughs> but he used this, the angel to, to, because with Zina, he asked her to marry him. She said, no. Then he said, you're supposed to be my celestial bride. And then only until the, it wasn't until the third time that he brings up the angel at all. So like, to me, that feels like he's just not giving her a way out by coming up with this angel. And Don Bradley has this whole thing about Orson Hyde seeing this comet, this meteor shower in a totally different location. And he, he the way he words it in his journal uh, is like an angel with a drawn sword. It's really confusing and complicated, but he's like, because this happened to Orson hide or then that's evidence that joseph did see this angel with the flaming sword it's really complicated and i don't understand it so if john wants to talk about that in the comments i he he's welcome to do that but yeah the angel with the flaming sword is just something that joseph used to help women decide to marry him he comes to them once specifically zina and she says no she's in love with henry and he waits a couple of years and she still says no he asks again through a through over a course of many years, correct? Well, that depends on that depends on whether you're accepting this source. But 1840, he approaches her. 41, she's already getting married, and then I and then I don't remember what this. It's on the slide, but like then he marries her in October. So it's over the course of at least two or three years. I think it's 42 that he marries her. But so 40, 41, 42. So yeah. Um, when Joseph Smith said that he had to marry other people's wives. Like had to, that's like the way that my kids act when they're like, I have to have dessert. Like you don't understand. I have, it's like, no, you won't die. You don't have to marry these wives. So when he asks politely, <laughs> whatever you want to say, it, there, there's just this air amongst Joseph and, and polygamy that something has to be done, that there is, there, there is a precedent. I love arguing with Mormon apologists because if they can find a precedent that something else existed, like, go, oh, you know, other people, they took concubines in the Bible. There's a precedent for this. There's a precedent for that. And then when there's not a precedent, what's, what's your answer then? There's no precedent for God 
needing to institute polygamy with such veracity that he is sending angels with flaming swords and then disrespecting the women's autonomy to say that even though you have said no, you still need to because your life will be threatened, your salvation will be threatened, and a myriad of other things. Whether there's a precedent or not, that really calls into question this loving Heavenly Father who just was like, Satan, you want to take away the free agency of my children? No way! I'm choosing Jesus to be the God of this world, and he wants everyone to have free agency. But then within that free agency, there's going to be angels with flaming swords that ensure that you have to marry my prophets. Sorry. Wait, I misspoke. I, I meant 1841. Okay, I just said the wrong date. So 1840 and 41. But also like, the, just for the record, he's not he's not saying that the women are going to die from the flaming sword. He says that he'll die. So if you don't marry me, I will die. So that's going to ruin the whole church. I don't know. I feel like it's more heavy if it's on him. Just in general that there's the agency is still removed. I misspoke I for a second, but yes, the agency is still removed that the onus on you to comply with Joseph's demands against your wishes of who you love, who you want to marry, who you want to share your body with, who you want to share your eternities with are all going to be superseded by what the men in power have to say over you and including an apparent loving heavenly father who loves free agency. It's his number one priority him and Tim Ballard are all on this 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 bang in this drum that Satan wants you enslaved. Slavery, slavery all day long over on Lucifer's plan. Free agency in this church, except never. Yeah, uh, uh, Bednar, where he's like, you don't have agency. As soon as you got baptized, you, you lost your agency. You gave it away. Now you have moral agency. What the yeah. fuck does that mean? It's just a new way to think of it. And it's, it makes sense though. Again, I, I have been in deep in research about what the covenant land means, what the covenant people means from learning from Tim Ballard. I am putting on my Mormon cap hardcore lately. And so I understand in a certain mindset where if you can believe that God, he had these chosen people, Israelites, and they we're looking for their Messiah and Jesus Christ. They said, no, thanks, but he fulfilled this messianic covenant. But then there's still all these other covenants that God wants his people to be under so bad. He just has like such a hard on for covenant making with his people. And they just like keep disobeying him. And it's just like, we need to strive for making covenants with the Lord because he wants us to make covenants with him so bad. Don't worry, Mormons. I have my Mormon cap on. I've had it on there. I understand it. We just don't want to make covenants with a God like that though. Like the God that you are presenting us with, the servants that you are sending. I know that the finite vessels, you know, the oil will runneth over. What if there's just literally better people than that? What if there's just like literal, literal better people than, than what has come out of Mormonism? Rants, rants all day here on the No and Tell YouTube channel. Um, so we have Zina who's like, no, thanks. I've already got a date for the prom. And then basically just miss like, well, I'm going to cut your tires. And she's like, fine. It's basically every Brady Bunch episode that you've ever seen with a little bit more drama. What is, what was the exact wording again that he said around Todd Compton's book where these um, sources are taken from in sacred loneliness, that it was very I, sloppy. Some of the most sloppy oh, work yeah. you'd ever seen. It was just like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah was that, that was the wording. Yeah, that he called it one of his sloppier moments. Yeah. 
Yeah. Good news. I don't have to believe that Todd Compton is a prophet and he could be as sloppy as could be. And I don't have to believe he's a prophet. The contradictions from Joseph Smith and what he collected that are supposed to be doctrines that we base our entire lives on. You want to call something sloppy, man, oh man, you have got your guy, but that's not the point I was making. I would ask Don, I'm trying to pull up your, Don gave me $61. Woohoo. Thanks buddy boy. Were you supposed to have a super chat with that, bud? Did you want to say anything? My question to Don though, is if in sacred loneliness, Todd Compton's work is so sloppy. Does he not like your polygamy podcast and Lindsay Hansen Park's work? And Lindsay Hansen Parks, director of Sunstone, um, works very closely with polygamous communities. I think Lindsay knows a shit ton about polygamy and Mormon history, very much based around Todd Compton's work. So what do we think about my old, what do we think about my pal Linz? I hope it's nothing but positive because I think that she's a genius and a miracle worker and we're just going to discount what she's based a lot of her work around on Todd Compton's work. That's a heavy statement. Yeah. Lindsay's great. And Brian Buchanan is right up there. They're both amazing historians. And Brian. Okay. Yeah, we're done with that one. one. Yeah. The next one is Mary Elizabeth Rollins. So like Don Bradley seems to want to throw out the situation with Zionists. So I'll ask, what about the situation of Mary Elizabeth Rollins? So I don't know if we want to read this whole thing. Maybe I'll just. I do. I really do. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So in I'm 18... texting Dodd Bradley. <laughs> okay. In 1834, this is the 1902 statement. In 1834, Joseph was commanded to take me for a wife. I was a thousand miles from him. He got afraid. The angel came to him three times, the last time with a drawn sword and threatened his life. I did not believe. If God told him so, why did he not come and tell me? The angel told him I should have a witness. An angel came to me. It went through me like lightning. I was afraid. Joseph said he came with more revelation and knowledge than Joseph ever dared revealed. Brigham Young sealed me to him for time and all eternity. On February 1842, this is after, Joseph said I was his before I came here and said all the devils in hell should never get him from me. And I'll just point out, so she's saying that Joseph in 1834 was commanded to take her. So he's just saying this retrospectively. So Mary in 1834 was 16 years old. So if Joseph, and at the time that Joseph actually did marry Elizabeth, she was pregnant. But there, this isn't a sign of delaying a relationship and not having sex with Mary Elizabeth because God told him when she was 16 that, that he would he should marry her. But she was far away and he got afraid. So like, guess I would ask Don, what about Mary Elizabeth? This is not a sign of delaying. And in the next slide, there's it shows a, a little bit more from Mary Elizabeth that I think is worse. In a letter to Emmeline B. Wells from summer of 1905, she says, as for Sister Whitney, Bishop Whitney's wife, Newell Kay, I shall never forget her as it was her, his house that the prophet Joseph first told me about his great vision concerning me. He said I was the first woman God commanded him to take as a spiritual wife in 1834. He was very much frightened about it until the angel appeared to him three times. When Mary Elizabeth was living with the Whitney's, it was 1831. Mary Elizabeth claims that Joseph Smith had a private conversation with her in 1831 and she was only 12 years old. He's coming to this 12 year old and he's like, you're going to marry me later. And when she was 16, God told him to marry her. This has nothing to do with her being pregnant. In fact, it's more like he really wants her. So he's going to take her whether she's married and pregnant anyway. I think you summed it up perfectly. He, you know, he's the prophet. He gets to have revelation. He gets to be the one to say what is on the heart and mind of God almighty. Who are we to say that God didn't tell you to marry me? even though I haven't even had a period yet and I still play 
with jacks and dolls and various other things that were only available in old timey days. She like literally got up from playing hopscotch and was like, I've never even heard of the things that you want me to do. And he's like, tell you all about it later, toots. And then the groomer's handbook was written. Just <laughs> again, apologists often say Joseph Smith didn't do anything so sleazy that it disqualified him from being a prophet. Even if I granted you that Mormon apologists. His successors. And the other prophets, the other breakoff sects of Mormonism, which God would have had to predict were going to happen. What about the oceans and oceans of trauma? If you could quantify it, if you know as a Mormon that you have a friend who's investigating the church and the missionaries are coming over and it's like, make sure that we tell them that we, we don't practice polygamy anymore. If you know that there is an ocean of trauma around Mormon polygamy, but you just so happened to be in the Brighamite branch that fought it until the very end, until they had to give in to the demands of the United States to become a part of it, not out of their own accord, but out of other outside pressures. It just makes me really angry and ranty that people still believe this is still allowable. Because even if I granted you that Joseph Smith did nothing sleazy in his polygamy, maybe if I granted you there is a God that told Joseph, hey, that 12-year-old, she's going to be your wife in a couple of years. And he decided to tell that to her, imp implanted that idea and that autonomy for who she wanted to marry and what her aspirations were, were supposed to be superseded by the other men in power in her life. If that, if I granted you that that's the system that God set up, tell me why he's worth worshiping. Tell me why he's worth worshiping. I don't see it from every single angle, even if I granted you that Joseph Smith, that wasn't sleazy, that was from God, the exact ways that that was borne out in all the other polygamous sects and all of the other prophets that followed that were having children by women in their mid-teens. If that is the type of agency that God thinks is agency, get a new God because that is not leading to any kind of human flourishing. Because we know instinctually that the type of polygamy that we don't want anyone to associate with this Brighamite branch of the LDS church, we're the Main Street branch. Those are the other crazy breakoff sex. And if you know that instinctively that we don't want to have anything to do with that, then you shouldn't want to have anything to do with where it's got those roots from, where it comes from, which is Joseph Smith. But we conveniently say, no, nah, no, Joseph Smith, he did that on behalf of God. Nobody else did it on behalf of God. You don't get to play it both ways. That's a great point. My, the great points come out the more that my heart hurts. Like the F words come out too. I was just thinking, you know, if anyone's watched the documentary on uh, Netflix with old Warren Jeffs, keep sweet and obey. Yeah. I don't mean to get this too heavy. This is the Nuanto YouTube channel and I try to keep it light and jokey, but I mean, the, the rapes and stuff that occurred under Warren Jeffs in the temple and stuff. Oh. You have a God. I'm with you on that. We are mortals down on earth and we are wondering where we came from. Where are we going? How did we get here? Those are existential questions we all want answered. Men, especially put in this position where they, without evidence, convince people that they speak on behalf of the God, the maker that made you tell you what you should be doing with your life. 
And that that is, if we don't like the other con men, we don't like Joseph Smith, we don't like the other people who practice polygamy in these ways. It just goes back to a God who allows his church to look indistinguishable from those other things that we don't like. And if you want to have reforms in Mormonism, if you want it to be a healthier place to belong to, we have to call out Joseph Smith and the roots of where all this comes from, or else we just live in this spin all the time. Again, going back to the Tim Ballard thing, you really believe in the Book of Mormon. You believe that this America is a chosen land. It's only a chosen land because Joseph Smith restored that covenant. Without Joseph Smith restoring that covenant, if he's not a prophet, this isn't the chosen land, then who am I? Am I not a child of God anymore? Do I not have a special election calling an election made sure? Do I not actually have the priesthood to be able to act on behalf of God? Am I not one of the special chosen leaders in the pre-earth life because I'm American? Does that mean that I'm, I'm not more blessed than anyone else? These are all stories that people just tell themselves because we live in a, a hotbed of crazy world with a lot of unknowns. And there are people who will, in all cultures, in all religions, take advantage of that insecurity that we have where we don't know where we came from, where we don't know where we're going. We don't know what the right moral answers are. But that is the life journey that we're all supposed to be on is to find that divinity within ourselves and to outsource it and to give that authority over to somebody like Joseph Smith, because without it, I'm not special. I'm not chosen. I don't believe that the type of God that I loosely even believe in doesn't want us to have this hierarchy of order where somebody else is able to speak on behalf of, of another human being on this earth and supersede their autonomy. But that is so much of the model of what overall religion is. I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't like it. It makes me feel ick all the way down to my core. Sorry, Jonah. You just feel ick because Joseph Smith needed to, to do what God said and subjugate women. Yeah, I don't want to live in a world where that's a norm. Sorry. This is like 90% Kara's rants and 10% Julia. I'm so sorry. Continue. Well, I love this. I mean, like, I hope you're making TikToks out of these or media. Like, these are all really good. So people just take advantage of our insecurities. People stand up for yourself. Don't put up with this. This, this is, you would not put up with it in another system. There's no reason to put up with it with Joseph Smith. You can still be loved and special and all of those things without thinking you only get that mantle because you believe in the Mormon God, the Mormon prophets, because you're an American. That's all just tribalism bullshit that's weaved into our, our subconscious and our psyche from our programming and evolution. <laughs> like we're trying to overcome that. We're all equal and all have a life journey to go on. Oh, it all comes back to Kara's rants about that Eckhart Tolle book she read three years ago, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I promise we're going to get through this. Anything else you want to say on this slide? Just Mary Elizabeth and Zina don't look like Joseph's not delaying a relationship with them is the point I was making. All right. Clip time. Okay. Anyone who knows me well knows that ultimately my research into Joseph Smith's history, I just want to know what happened. Like literally... I just want to know what happened. Yeah, so I just want to know what happened. That's I love that sentiment. Like, just show me the research. I just want to find out what happened. I love that. And I don't think that Don Bradley actually means that. I think what he wants is he will fit everything into the point that he's trying to make. Like, he's, he's basing his argument off of one source that says 1842, that she was married in his house, even though other accounts say the opposite. And this idea that men didn't have sex with their pregnant wives. Like, it, it just really feels like he's not accepting the evidence around him. Just teach me the truth. That's not what he's doing. It sounds like the church guy who said, um, I start with the conclusion that the book of Abraham is true and everything I find, I just fit into that. And I feel like that's what Don Carrie Bradley Carrie Mulstein. Carrie Mulstein, thank you. 
yeah, I just feel like a lot of Mormons do that. They're like, I need this to be true because it helps me um, understand and live life. So everything has to fit into that. I can't accept anything else. And I think until we can get past that and accept everything, we won't have the freedom. We will be locked into this sometimes toxic place, like especially if we're queer or black or female or we're divorced or our spouse is dead. Everything. Anyway. Yeah. And I will say... Don had an earlier comment where he said, appreciate your tone is polite. I'm trying to keep, I swear I am friends with everybody. I, I really have no ill intent for anybody except for if I ever saw a card in, in public. Don, I, my respect for you, it's, it's as good as I can have for a Mormon apologist. I get along with everybody because I understand the reasons why they do the things that they do. And if I were in their shoes, I'd do the same things too. And it, there's no judgment here for me. It's just with People are trying to grasp at cherry-picked evidence and have conclusions already baked in to the arguments that they're trying to make with a confirmation bias, as Julia is pointing out here, and that it's all in the service of a very authoritarian church. Somebody was asking earlier, you know, Don, I'd love to hear your story of why you came back to the church, because he, Don said earlier, he's like, it definitely wasn't polygamy. There was some confusion over that because... There was an episode that I saved on my phone from when he was on, I think it's Stephen Jones's podcast. And the title yeah. of it was like, Polygamy led me, led Don Bradley back into the church. And I was like, really? I would love to hear all about that. And then Don said in the chat, he's like, no, polygamy definitely didn't lead me back. So maybe that was just like a hyper clickbait title. But there are reasons why people have spiritual experiences that can lead them back into the church for all kinds of reasons. I just don't believe, I believe that spiritual experiences are ubiquitous. They happen in every single culture and people have supernatural things that they feel like tie them to one belief system. But that belief system is not material. It's not provable. At the end of the day, it is just an idea. And so whatever you believe about that idea because of your experiences just furthers that idea. There's nothing to say that it actually has real evidentiary support to it. By your fruits, these shall know them. The fruits of Joseph's polygamy are very rotten. I know Mormons will argue that, well, the fruits of me living Mormonism are great. I got off drugs. I'm faithful to my wife. All of the spiritual experiences within Mormonism that would lead you to that conclusion is just part of Christ consciousness. It is just part of this ubiquitous idea that all, all Zen masters, all religious people at their highest, most well-intentioned aspects are trying to get at. Compassion, empathy, service, loving yourself, loving others, the things that Jesus taught, or even if he did teach, are just a culmination of a lot of those ideas. And so I have a huge problem with a very authoritarian church who puts people into these boxes, takes away their autonomy, tells them who they are, where they came from, says that your feelings will always be superseded by the feelings of somebody else in authority. Even if what they are doing is wrong, you will still be blessed. That's a teaching in Mormonism, that even if what they are teaching is wrong, you will still be blessed by following it. So this very authoritarian version of spirituality, it cancels everything out. It's it's null. It's void. The spiritual experiences cannot possibly be of a highest benefit if the justification, the ends to the means that you're trying to get at is a, a subjugation of yourself, your feelings, your intuitions, your compassion, your empathy for others outside of your in-group, your, your knowledge of what is right and wrong, and making excuses for people to do things that you know are right and wrong that actually do have real life ramifications and harm all because the spiritual experiences that you had are tying you to to commit to do these actions within this system it's universal that people have spiritual experiences and it's also universal that those spiritual experiences tie people in all kinds of cults religions cultures secular things and not that the elevated emotions tie people into those systems to keep giving 
and keep giving regardless of what the, the outcome is, regardless of what it actually benefits the person as. And so spiritual experiences are strong. They're real. People feel something that it ties them to. So anyone who has come back into the church because they felt something like that, and therefore that means that the church is true and Joseph Smith was a prophet, that comes at the cost that spiritual experience you're having to give your devotion to Joseph Smith as a prophet, it comes at the highest cost possible that no person should be able to put up with. That cost is everything that this very dogmatic, very difficult to reform, very authoritarian church has preached since the beginning and preaches today. The benefits do not outweigh the risks of a person spiritually to themselves and into society at large. Am I one of those atheists who's like, I hate all religion. Religion should just be banned forever. Nobody practice it. No, I'm not one of those people. We are wired to be religious, to find and seek out spiritual experiences. We are also wired to create stories and myths and share them with people in our community. And that has built our society from the very beginning. That has built our success as a human civilization, as homo sapiens. That's wired into us. It is my, it, it, it's Kara's gold. That something that exists innate to our our programming, our conditioning to share myths, to share stories, to have spiritual experiences can be shared in a way where nobody's are better than the other. Nobody's has one idea of what is ultimately true. You sound like a moral relativist. I don't put up with that argumentation that when somebody leaves the, the conditions of a high demand fundamentalist religion, that anything goes. I think that the highest plane of spirituality is to find the divinity within, to actually find the path and the journey so that you do not outsource your autonomy. You do not outsource your morality to something that it can be so ambiguous and change so often because every single human being needs to find that within themselves so that they are not constantly looking to people who are willing to take advantage of spiritual experiences for their own benefit that is not the benefit ex the experiencer of the spiritual experiences. So bringing this all back to Joseph Smith, do I believe that the, the converts and the women and the early Mormon saints and settlers, did they have spiritual experiences and miracles and things that they couldn't explain that tied them to Mormonism? Yes. And if it was any other religion, that would be fine. There's so many spiritual experiences that happen in so many different cultures. It's ubiquitous around the world. It just matters. What is that saying to the person? What is the narrative? How does that play out in their life? And how does that spiritual experience tie them down or lift them up? And I left Mormonism because the spiritual experiences I had felt like Mormonism was tying me down. It was asking me to think less of people to think less of gay people, to think less of myself, to think less of my abilities and to achieve things in this life because of my gender. That you can go either way on that ladder of what that spiritual experience is going to tie you to. And I just think, I haven't said the F word in a while, I just think it's just like totally fucked up if you tie it to a high demand authoritarian cult who was started by a sexual predator who under any other circumstances we would call a con man. And to finish Don Bradley's comment, he said, I did not return to the church because of polygamy. That would be crazy. Like you, I'm disturbed by it very much. Well, that didn't come across in your fair LDS speech very much. I'll give you credit for saying that comment here. Love you so much. Welcome on the show anytime. TheNuanceHo at gmail.com. Everything's in the description below. Anyone who is a Mormon apologist of any kind is also welcome to come and argue with me because I think, I think my arguments are pretty down pat, honestly. So who can argue with that? Autonomy? Freedom? Come on. <laughs> Like you, your rants are so like spot on and they're like, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so good. No wonder you have your own podcast and stuff. Like, thanks. Your nonprofit. Like you are so cool. Thanks. Julia made a TikTok the other day where she was like, I got the attention of Don Bradley 
and he said this about me and I was up talking to him last night and we're going to go debunk what he said to me because I got the attention of another certain ex-Mormon content creator. And then Julia did a very long pause of like, <laughs> as if to be like, you know, the one, the thought leader and stuff. And I was flattered because I think Julia is amazing when she started working at Mormon stories and, you know, she'd come on now and then. And I am, I am flattered to be in your presence. The, the stuff that you have put together, I am blown away. Every single video that oh, comes thanks. up on my feed before I even watch it. I'm like, like reshare, <laughs> save, unfollow to follow again. <laughs> Julia is amazing. Like I, I hope Don respects a lot of the research and time that you put into this. He did say that he, he he's going to listen to this later and, and hopefully integrate what we shared today. If it's information he didn't know before into his future speeches and things and, and research. And I hope that is true because as I stated before, there are different factions within Mormonism and some people do not want to hear less than faith promoting ideas about their profit. So kind of depends on who is going to pay you, Don, to say things that might be uncomfortable truths. You know what I mean? But thanks for putting together all this, Julia. Thanks for sharing your platform with me so I can present it. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm Hopefully. so willing to have you come on anytime. If anybody has made it through this whole three hours and you <laughs> want um, more Julia, just say the word and I'll present something and then you can rant next time. Okay. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. I've taken up too much of your time, everyone. Thank you so much. Love, 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 love to have this audience and just growing this ex-Roman community. I know when I was leaving, it felt very lonely to not have people to, to look up to and to listen to who were trying to say the rants that were inside my head. So uh, a lot of people for a long time in the church have been uncomfortable about polygamy. And when you start learning the more details, and the more things that pile up on your shelf and so forth, make Mormons feel like they have to finally make a break with the church. So if that is anyone out there that is listening, because you'd be surprised. Sometimes I just think I'm talking to ex-Mormons, but I often get comments from people who are like, I hated you. I just watched you because you were stupid, but your cleavage was nice. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I often get comments from people who, who a video or something that I said changed them and they realized they needed to part ways with the church. So Aww. I hope so much that the information that we shared today, that you take it with the understanding that we, we were both believing Mormons at one point believed that the prophet Joseph Smith was truly called of God and based a lot of our lives and decisions around them and came to the harrowing realization that that was no longer a path that should be taken anymore because the evidence was too substantial to commit to a belief in something of that nature. I take my spirituality very serious. I take evidence very serious. If you are a new, new watcher of this channel, hope this podcast found you well and make sure to go over and follow Julia on analyzing Mormonism on all the platforms. If you want to get the real straight to the point, highly articulate, well-researched information about so many things to do with Mormon history. Julia is your gal. So thanks again, Julia, for doing this. And yeah. this podcast ain't free. It is free. I run on YouTube ads during this and uh, you don't have to watch them. They're just there. But also mostly donors. Donors are a huge part of making this. I 
opened a nonprofit under the pressures of John and Bill Real and help from lots of other cool people in the space and want to be able to do this full time and provide content like this that is full of resources and information and lulls to the experiment community. And now I've, I've put my hat in the ring. I'm doing this full time. Mm -hmm. I have a ton of really, really researched, awesome co content coming out regularly. Reoccurring donors are the best, the best, best, best at keeping all of this sustained long-term. And it's all tax deductible in the United States. Links are below. Julia, any other final parting words? I think um, this is pretty good. Yeah. Well, so not to take from you, but like, I also have a Patreon if you wanted to go there. Oh, sorry. Yes. Julia, how can people donate to you? Um, so yeah, I have a Patreon. I also have a Venmo. It's on my, it's on my, TikTok. I'll leave it in the comments. Yeah. Any little Please. bit helps. No. She's a single mom. Didn't you hear ex-husband? Well, I have a girlfriend, so I'm not like really single. <laughs> you know, they don't get paid as much as men. So really are, are you oh, guys? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of sucks, but yeah, well, absolutely donate to Julia. Thanks for spending three hours with me. Jeez. All right. I am ending this now. Love you guys so much. Bye. Bye.